Hello, everyone. Welcome to the MJ Cast, episode 110. This is our annual Thriller Night special episode, and today it will be hosted by myself, Q, and my guests are Adam Green and Paul Black, and we will be discussing filmmaking, Michael Jackson, and of course, Thriller and Ghosts, the epic Michael Jackson films. Welcome to episode 110 of the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hi everyone, happy Thriller Night. Of course, it is our special annual Michael Jackson Thriller Night special on his own holiday. And today it is me, Q, hosting the show. Jamin is off and unavailable. His computer's in the shop. He's worked it to death. But today we have got two special guests. We have got return guest Paul Black in Studio Sydney and Adam Green. Paul Black, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Q. Good to be here. It is great to have you back and great to talk to you again. And, of course, a special first-time guest, Adam Green, who is calling in from Studio Hollywood. Adam Green, welcome to the MJ cast. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be on my favorite podcast. I'll stop. You'll make me blush. No, like <laughs> legit. It's it's the only one I listen to. So maybe by default, it's my favorite. But <laughs> I'm really honored to be here. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Wow. Well, you, of course, host a, a giant podcast yourself with a, a very appropriate theme to uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight. And we're going to hear about that shortly. But Paul, welcome back. Um, listeners who may have been listening to us for a long time would have heard Paul Black on episode 25, Right Time, Right Place, Black Magic with all his amazing fan stories of being a Michael fan and things like that. So go check that out. That is one of my favorites. We had Paul join us for a roundtable, our Michael Jackson and Prince roundtable, which is episodes 41 and 42. That was another terrific chat with some great Prince stories as well as Michael stories. Episode 66, Long Hair Don't Care, That was the last time you were visiting us, and that was quite a while ago. So, Paul, it's great to have you back. You, of course, are a film editor. You have been uh, teaching film editing for the last few years in uh, film school in Sydney. And what are you doing at the moment? Probably by the time this goes to air, we'll be like right in the middle of editing this feature film we're doing, which starts shooting very soon. So that's pretty much causing a lot of uh, fun and preparation and stress and all the usual good stuff. But yeah, dead in the middle of that at the moment. So fingers and crossed then, that all comes together. And then you get to use that fancy new uh, editing suite studio that I saw. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Nice. Well, that couch was comfy that people get to sit on and watch your editing. So I hope <laughs> it goes well. <laughs> 
And of course, Adam Green, you are a filmmaker. Adam Green, folks, has written and directed 10 feature films to date, uh, including Frozen, not the Disney one. That although what they did to Epcot with that film was a horror show. Um, <laughs> Digging Up the Marrow, the Hatchet franchise. You may know the modern day slasher icon Victor Crowley, which apparently you can even buy Halloween masks of, which is terrifying because he looks scary <laughs> AF. Adam, you've also created, written, and directed, and showrun, and and even starred in your TV sitcom Holliston. Can you be any busier and how on earth have you got time to even listen to our podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I don't, I don't have time to listen to podcasts, but I do make time for this one. In fact, I've gotten to the point where the second a new episode drops, I usually listen to it within like four or five hours, but I don't sleep. So that makes it a lot easier to find time to do this. (laughs) So you're a vampire. (laughs) Basically, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> that works well then because you also host of course the the wildly successful consistently released and one of the longest and probably I reckon the longest running movie podcast out there would it be the movie crypt is it the longest running movie podcast I I really don't know uh we only we started it when season two of Holliston was airing and we were only going to do it for the 10 weeks that Holliston was airing. And that's why we called it the movie crypts because on, on the sitcom, my co-host and I, our characters host a late night cable TV show called the movie crypts. So we were gonna quit after 10 weeks and then all of a sudden it just became a really big thing. And I, I guess it's because of all, you know, we know almost everybody, I guess, and because we're filmmakers ourselves, they're much more willing to be honest and candid when they're speaking to us. So it just turned into something really special, but now we're stuck with this terrible title that sounds like a horror movie review podcast, and that's not <laughs> what it is. <laughs> you, do, you do talk about horror movies sometimes. We do. And we do. you've had a lot of sort of uh, horror movie stars and, and filmmakers on your show. This week, you sent me some links. I've watched the Monster Problems short film. I watched the Adam Green's Scary Sleepover episode 2.4, which, folks, the guest (laughs) on that was Slash. Slash. Yeah. Which was really cool. (laughs) Really cool. And I watched some of the trailers of your films and Holliston, so Hatchet and Frozen. Wow. Pretty impressive. Thank you. <laughs> I know I know you're not the biggest horror fan, so that's why I sent you trailers cuz yes, you probably wouldn't like the movies. Uh yeah, they they would send me into therapy. So the limit of my horror is let me think. Stranger Things season 3 was really scary. Yeah. And the the Scream movie franchise, Urban Legend from the 90s, that sort of film, the Scream mm. MTV series, even though it was silly and stupid, it was still quite scary. So that's like the limit, I reckon, for me. <laughs> I think Scream is way scarier than Hatchet. Hatchet is a comedy. So Yeah, I, but it's Hatchet is very gruesome. It is. It's very bloody. Very bloody. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think like the limit for that for me was like Netflix Daredevil 
And that was extreme gruesome for me. Like often I'd be when they were like, oh, no, The Punisher was actually even worse. The Punisher on Netflix. That was so gruesome. I was often watching behind my hands. Okay. So yeah, don't watch Hatchet. <laughs> <laughs> Good tip. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, you've worked like, I was just looking at your, uh, say for Frozen, um, the, the, is that a horror movie? Would you class that as horror? Yeah, more of a thriller. Your films have some huge names. Just drop some of the names that you've worked with in, say, Frozen and, and Hatchet, if you could, Adam. With Frozen, Kevin Zegers, who people know, for, well, when he was a child, he was in the Air Bud movies. And then he was in Transamerica, which was a huge film for him. And Sean Ashmore, who was uh, Iceman in the X-Men movies. Emma Bell, that was actually, Frozen was her first movie, and then she went on to do The Walking Dead and Dallas. In the Hatchet movies, it's pretty much like all of the icons of horror, like Kane Hodder, who plays Victor Crowley. He is the best-known actor from, yeah, Jason. And yeah. Robert England, who people know as Freddy Krueger. Tony Todd, who's Candyman. The late Sid Haig, who just passed away last weekend. Mm -hmm. Sadly. Yeah, sorry about that. Daniel Harris from the Halloween movies. It's just a lot of fun. The, the horror genre are the nicest people you'll ever meet. Because when I started out, I was doing strictly comedy. And it's night and day between comedians and people who are in <laughs> horror movies. Wow. Wow. Paul, do you want to drop some names that you've worked with when you were over in L.A.? Not really, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I lived in LA for four years, so it was in and around all sorts of stuff at varying levels. But yeah, I worked on a few films. We had Matthew Modine in, in one of the films we did, which was pretty cool. People probably know from Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick. Kristen Chenoweth was in that, as well as Alicia Rulin, who did a whole bunch of the um, Disney high school musical movies. Um, yeah, and just a whole bunch of different short films and things and various things going on and hanging out on sets over there, watching them do Dark Knight Rises and all that kind of fun stuff. And Australian editor on that film. He's a good guy, Lee Smith, etc., etc. Yeah, good fun to be had over there. That is crazy and cool. Mm. Well, Adam, I want to say your podcast I've been catching up after you sent us an amazing email earlier this year. Um, I listened recently to the Barbara Crampton episode. Filmmaker from Penny Dreadful, Paco. Oh, Paco, yes. That was a terrific episode. That was really cool. And I love not only learning you know, from these other filmmakers that you interview, but also how it is to be a filmmaker so, Paul, I remember when you were living in L.A., I'd be hearing stories from you. And, you know, it's not all, you know, Hollywood Boulevard and premieres and sunshine. It's a struggle in Hollywood. And, Adam, you talk about that a lot on your show. And, and it's really amazing yeah. to get that raw. That's really what the show is about, is, yeah. is the struggle. I think that it's really inspiring for people to hear that, even if it's Chris Columbus or John Landis or somebody huge, or if it's somebody fairly new, everybody still struggles. It's, yeah. There's never a point where you just have it made. And mm. when you hear that, it makes you feel a lot better that it's not just you who it always rains on, you know? 
that was one of the things that actually struck me when I was living in LA was the amount of like big people who would come and, you know, do Q and A's or whatever, or you'd get to work with them or something. And you know them from so many things and you think, oh, they're the person who did this and this. But then you realize that people think of them that way, but in reality, they've got a life to lead and they're sort of struggling just to get things going and trying to find work. And even Oscar winning people that you think, well, you've won an Oscar, surely you're set. And it's like, yeah. well, you know, I had a cine famous cinematographer who has won Oscars and I'm like, oh, how's it all going? Uh, and he's like, yeah, well, I just shot a dog commercial and we're basically trying to find another gig. And I'm like, geez, um, it's just a, such a common tale that you feel like people have made it because they are known for things they've done. But the reality behind the scenes is always an ongoing struggle. People are constantly saying, that's it. I'm out. I quit. And then maybe coming back and then quitting again. It's just, it's really, it's a hard slog behind the scenes. And every time you get the glory of a, of a successful project, it kind of inspires you to keep going. But, you know, times can be rough and up and down. And I guess I, I sort of realized how, how many people, even at the biggest level, when you get to know them or talk to them, they're just still going through the same stuff that everyone else is. And, and you know, you really have to love it and have perseverance to kind of stick with it, you know? That's exactly it. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, if you had a hit movie, like if Hatchet had come out 20 years ago and turned into a franchise like it is now, then yeah, I, I might maybe not be set for life life, but I would be doing really well. But over the past just 15 years with streaming and how easy it is to steal movies on the internet, if you're going to do indie stuff like what I do, it's almost impossible to make money, no matter how successful the movie is. Mm. That's where the love comes in. <laughs> yes, yes, love and hate. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not just uh, the actors who are the struggling artists per se. No. It is all of the people that actually create the art of films. One of the things that people might not know is a lot of the people who work in this industry making films. Essentially, it's a freelance job work model you're not really employed like in the old days you might be employed by one of the big studios back in the 50s or whatever and you just made whatever films they were churning out but these days for the most part if you're working as a director or producer or an editor or a cinematographer or a production designer whatever it is you're essentially a freelance artist which means you'll get a job and you'll be working on that for however long that runs but then after that, you don't know where your next meal's coming from. And you have to go, okay, well, is there another one lined up? And you kind of have to work enough so you've got money to keep going while you're looking for the next one. So you don't have to take a job you really don't want. You can find the right project. It's, it is a basically a freelance kind of industry. You know, a lot of people don't really think about that, but but it can be tough, you know, like anything. It's not a solid, consistent thing. I mean, if you get on a TV series that's like successfully runs for 10 years, you might be steadily employed. But a lot of it is essentially freelance. Shows get cancelled all the time. Movies start, stop, fall apart. You know, when's the next one? Oh, that's fallen through. It's, it's you know, you really got to sort of be in that sort of headspace to kind of persevere. And, and, you know, sometimes it can be a bit sort of hairy. You don't know what's happening. And then all of a sudden everything happens and then it's good again. It's, it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> Well, you have to be thinking really far ahead. And one of the things that I'm very fortunate with is that I have a very big and very loyal following. So even though that doesn't mean I see the money that these films make, I can tour 
just like yeah. uh, when I was in a band. And so when a, a new movie is finished, like the last Hatchet movie, which I think actually just came out in Australia today, if this is going to air on Halloween, oh. it's called Victor Crowley. It's the fourth Hatchet movie. When that was finished, I toured with it. So I went for six weeks all across America, but I had the only copy of that film. So nobody could steal it. And every night was sold out. And then you sell T-shirts. And well, actually, we didn't sell T-shirts, but we sold hatchets and Victor Kelly's skull. <laughs> um, but it's just, you have to think like a band now. But what do you do if you're a new filmmaker who doesn't have a following yet? You, you can't tour. Who's going to come? So it's on us and the people who have a following to start taking new filmmakers with us, like an opening act almost, and introducing yeah. their short film or whatever it is. But everything has to sort of be rethought now. Crazy. Yeah. Folks listening, of course, the main discussion topic today, of course, will be Thriller and Michael Jackson's Ghosts. We will talk about that in depth coming up very soon, I promise. I'm going to start steering that ship a little bit now. But um, Adam, one of your recent episodes, of course, was with uh, Taz Jackson, and it was about the fallout and sort of helping correct the narrative of uh, the Leaving Neverland film. And I remember you telling us on that show and us in emails, you were advised by people not to make such an episode. So how did it go down? What was the reaction to it? And was there fallout for you talking about the Leaving Neverland film and having Taz Jackson on your podcast? It's awful right now because Hollywood especially is in the, the time that we're living in with me too and time's up and uh, i don't know there's probably a new one that popped up this week but those are very important good movements and they're making a ton of progress which is great to see but then you have something like leaving neverland where it's like they're trying to use that to push their lies and you know when i first saw the documentary uh, i was i was terrified because it's like, once Michael had passed, it's like, thank God we're never going to have to deal with this again. And then all of a sudden, I hear that this TV series, because that's really what it was, it was for television, got into Sundance late. I've had two films at Sundance, like, that doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden, nobody was talking about the Weinstein documentary at all. And mm. the whole thing was weird. And so when I saw it, I was very scared, but to be completely honest, I wavered. You know, when I saw it, I was on the fence for the first time in my life thinking, oh my God, like, did Michael do this? You know, I'm an empathetic person and I like to believe most people are. And it's one thing to read an accusation or hear about it on the news and another to look at two human beings in the face for four out, well, three and a half and then a half hour of drone shots and uh, <laughs> and and listen to these stories and you can't help but have your heart break. And so as soon as it was over, I was ready to throw out all of my Michael Jackson stuff. I felt ashamed that I'd been on the wrong side of history for my whole life. I'm like, this is something isn't right here. And I had a nervous breakdown. Like I went down a rabbit hole for three months where I, I couldn't do anything but keep reading. And I read 16 books. I read every piece of court literature that there was. I read Michael's entire FBI file. 
I am 200 million percent certain he did not do any of these things. You can come to that conclusion very quickly if you actually look, but no one does. And in Hollywood, it's all about grandstanding. So if somebody does something bad, these celebrities or just anybody in the industry, they have to get on social media and yell as loud as they can that they are against whatever that bad thing was because they need to feel like a good person. I've known Taj for a long time. We weren't all that close, but I was watching what he was going through and I'm like, nobody on the Hollywood side is saying anything. I don't know what the actual saying is, but there's some famous saying about how if you know that there's an injustice happening and you keep your mouth shut, you're, you're part of the problem. And mm. I was like, I, so I called Taj and I told him what I wanted to do. He was, I mean, you guys know him. He's the nicest, sweetest. He's just such a wonderful guy. And he was so appreciative. But, you know, from my representation, from other friends, they're like, don't do this. Let somebody else fall on this sword. You have no idea what's going to happen to you if you do this right now. Don't do it. And I had to. And I mm -hmm. said to my co-host, if you want to conveniently be sick that day, <laughs> if, you know, I understand. But, you know, Joe, he isn't as researched as I am, but he believes Michael was innocent as well. And, you know, he was right there with me. So yeah, sh we shout out to your co-host, Joe Lynch, and also your other co-host, Super Q Arwen, by the way. I yes. think I forgot to mention them earlier. Yes. So we did the episode and I, I think it turned out well. It was really well done. Really good. Thank you. What I tried to do was sort of give Taj a little bit of a break where he was there to say what he felt and correct me if I happened to be incorrect about any of the facts that I was giving, you know, he's always the one saying it. So I wanted people to see that it's not just him. He's not doing this because he's family. Like these are known facts. And so the episode aired. And to be honest, the fallout wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be. A lot of people wanted to come at me but to do so, they would have to prove that I was wrong about the facts that I cited. And I mm. think that that forced them to go look it up. And then they saw that I was right. So most of the people that, that did come at me were on Twitter. And they were the same people that have like 10 accounts. And they go after anybody who is a Michael Jackson fan. You know, they never had any substance. They never had any proof. It was stuff like, you have to believe victims. And I, I think that's right. We should believe victims. But these aren't victims. They're accusers. And they're known liars. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. But <laughs> we, we had moved to a, a new network. Fangoria Magazine is like the horror magazine. And they just came back. They're in their 40th year, but they had sort of gone away for a couple of years and they were starting a podcast network. And, you know, our show's big enough to stand on its own. We didn't need to join their podcast network, but we wanted to because we're horror filmmakers, we're huge fans. And, you know, the horror community is very tight. And when we did, we were seeing on Twitter, there were people tweeting to Fangoria saying they were going to cancel their subscriptions because they were working with us. And so it, it hasn't ended. And 
it's it's ugly and it it sucks because you can't reach these people. They're not going to look. They're not going to read anything. They just some of them, the most outspoken, haven't even watched. They just heard about it. It's a scary time, and all it takes is a group of people to yell witch, and you get burned alive, and there's nothing you can do about it. So it was a big risk. Shout out to the MJ family because the, the fans were incredible. Most of them, you know, just like yourself, they weren't familiar with our podcast or me or my work or anything. They kind of showed up in droves, which was nice to see. Very quickly, I... I I've made so many friends in the community. I went to the in the studio with MJ that they did here in LA a couple months ago, and it felt like I already knew half the people there. Tomorrow, I'm going to be going to the premiere of Square One uh, to support yep. Danny, and it's Sweet. just a great community. But it is a scary time, and you know, even when this comes out, if I post it on Twitter, hey guys, I was on the MJ cast. Listen. I'm I'm in for it, you know. So it's <laughs> it, it's sad, but to be positive here, the tide has turned a little bit. And what's sad is that it wasn't from all of the documentaries that have come out. It wasn't from all of the facts. It was because Dave Chappelle said he doesn't believe them, and all of a mm. sudden, everyone was like, maybe they are lying. And I'm sitting there <laughs> flab- flabbergasted, like that's what it took on Fox News of all places, Fox News, they did a just a six-minute thing questioning the validity of these accusations. And Geraldo Rivera has been pretty outspoken that he doesn't believe it. But people are really starting to waver and change and think. And I'm shocked that it has taken this long. And I'm shocked that, we, that Hollywood handed these assholes an Emmy. But uh, <laughs> they had to because of the subject matter. Because th- uh, look, let's let's be honest. If we weren't even Michael Jackson fans, or if let's say we we all thought he did it, you can't say that that is a well-made film. It, it's terrible, and they gave it an Emmy. So, and then Safe Chuck went and stood up there like an actor, like you, he. It's disgusting. So uh, I hope it changes more and more over these next few months. I hope that this can get buried. But this this was in some ways worse than the actual court trials because there there is no trial. It's just word of mouth. Well, we appreciate everything that everybody's doing, but thank you so much for having Taj on your show and actually putting out there that there are some legitimate industry people out there who also can see what's really going on and giving Taj a voice and supporting him and his documentary and people like Charlie Thompson, who I love, you know, I'm so glad he's involved now with, with uh, Taj's documentary and then Danny Wu's documentary coming out. So we appreciate everything that you're doing and uh, supporting everybody and getting all this stuff out there. And we're all trying to do everything we can to support all these projects and get the truth out. Isn't it true though? It does feel like you meet friends that you just never knew you had, you know, like, yeah, it's, it, it really is such a, a wonderful group of people. And what I loved about the MJ cast was when leaving Neverland first came up and there was a part of the discussion. And I think I spoke about this when Taj was on where you guys sort of said, this is going to hurt. Like we're in for it. This is going to suck mm. and kind of gave people some advice on how to handle it which I thought was so important and so just 
well said because just you know arguing with people online and showing what a good what a big fan you are that's not how to go about this like you got to be well read you have to be educated you have to know what you're talking about and i think a lot of fans have made the effort to do that and not just they don't just defend michael because they're a fan and i think that's important hugely so well you know speaking of michael did he sort of help influence you to become a filmmaker in both of your industries, like either the editing industry for you, Paul, or Adam as like directing? I guess in a way, because when I became a fan, I sort of became sort of totally into when I was really young, you know, and still in in school, I was totally into trying to watch all these in those days, VHS, you know, Michael's stuff and trying to record stuff off the TV. And that's in a way how I started actually editing because I decided I wanted to try and compile all my favorite bits onto a VHS tape and I'd have two VHS decks and I'd be, you know, trying to record and edit from one to another. And then I'd also try and record on audio cassettes, you know, my own little like compilations and mixes. And it was my, I think when I first became a fan, it was my goal, uh, having at the time recently seen Moonwalker, to try and recreate that whole retrospective audio sort of montage uh, on an audio cassette. So I'm like, if I can collect all of the pieces, you have to buy all the albums and then I can edit together everything that they used in that opening sort of montage. So I guess in a way I started editing through that and then, uh, you know, loved all the short films and you know, Thriller and everything and Moonwalker. And then that kind of, in a way, sort of really started to grow my passion into wanting to to make this. And, and Michael was always talking about his creative process and how he does stuff. And that kind of got my juices going as well and thinking, yeah, I love the The making of Thriller at the time was like, you know, basically one of the very first kind of making of people weren't used to seeing how they actually did things in those days because they didn't have you know dvds and and even home video was kind of new so when they released that it was like wow you get to see how they actually did it and all the all the effects and all rick baker's work and all that kind of stuff so yeah totally got me into the industry in a lot of ways was was totally an inspiration for me yeah uh i could basically repeat everything that paul just <laughs> said uh the, the making of thriller was everything because uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a music video, it was a film. And to see like, you know, real film cameras and dollies and cranes and to see how Rick Baker did the effects, like I was obsessed with it. And even down to thinking, you know, until the making of Thriller, you didn't really see directors that much because this was long before DVD special features and stuff. And seeing what John Landis looked like and seeing pictures of Steven Spielberg. And it was like, okay, so if I'm going to be a director, I have to have a beard. I have to have glasses. <laughs> I, have. <laughs> I know I was eight years old when it came out and so many people my age, they all say the same thing. They're like, yeah, I, I knew I needed to grow a beard if I was going to be. <laughs> George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, John exactly. Landis. Yeah. They all have Francis beards. Coppola. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It turns out, though, there's actually a little bit more involved <laughs> than just a beard. <laughs> Women can be directors as well. Exactly. I, I remember seeing, you know, Thriller and the making of Thriller back in the, the late 80s, early 90s. So I guess I would have been about nine or 11 years old. Pretty sure it's when we didn't even own a VHS player. 
We right. used to like rent one on the occasional yeah. school holiday breaks, and I just yeah. loved the making of films so much. Like, even right. if the thriller film did scare me as a kid, and you know, I grew out of that, thank God. Although I still don't like horror movies, but seeing that process and the movie magic behind what was clearly something quite different to other videos that we were watching on video hits and things like that was so cool. Having grown up watching and knowing it by heart, you know, in reality, there was like maybe three Michael Jackson VHS releases, you know, for most of his career until... Legend Continues, Making a Thriller. thriller. They were like the three that... That was it. And knowing Making a Thriller so well and watching, you know, all the behind the scenes and everything, um, what was really cool was like when I was in LA last year, uh, you know, Rick Baker recreated the Thriller makeup live at one of these um, monster conventions. So it was kind of cool because I was watching him there and he's actually, they had someone do the, in the whole Michael outfit with the whole thing from Thriller with the jacket and the whole thing. And, and, and they were doing the whole thing and putting all the makeup on and, and it's Rick Baker actually there doing it and you're watching it going, hey, wow, it's all coming to life in front of my very eyes. And it was just so cool because you have that that childhood attachment to it to actually see. Because, I mean, I've been lucky to meet Rick a few times, but just to see him actually do the makeup and and look at it and go, wow, you know, try and imagine if for, it was actually Michael. It was a pretty good match, for, actually. For something that meant so much to you. And I, I remember seeing those photos when you got back from that trip to the US and I was like, whoa. And it was like, looked identical. It was so good. But you didn't even know that he would be doing that himself that day at that con, did you? Yeah, well, it's like anything in LA. Like so, so often you just stumble upon stuff. You're stumbling around just doing your thing and then you go, oh, I didn't know that was going to be here. And oh, look, they're shooting this and this is going on. But yeah, I mean, that was pretty cool. I think we knew that, that uh, the Rick Baker studio was going to be there. It was on the schedule or whatever, but we didn't actually know Rick was going to be there himself actually doing it with his team right in front of everybody. So it was cool and everyone was, you know, there was just a massive crowd around, you know, everyone was wanting to get pictures and selfies and all that. It was it was a really, really cool thing. Adam, I don't know for you, uh, seeing ghosts for the first time, so I'll ask you about that in a moment. But Paul, I know you got to see the Michael Jackson ghosts film in a cinema with Michael Jackson himself at the Sydney premiere while he was uh, here in Australia for the History World Tour. And then when you actually saw it in Perth in what would have been, I guess, early 97. No, that was... uh, Was that 96 as well? Yeah, I think it was late 96. Okay. Well, I was in the cinema with you, not Michael Jackson, but I was, because I was seated (laughs) in the row behind you. Very cool. And we saw that together, even though we weren't even friends. I do remember you there. Ghosts in the cinema was quite the cinematic spectacle, like incredible effects and costumes, lighting, everything was just so amazing on the big screen. But we did see a different edit back then to what was eventually released on the Ghost Box set VHS home release. Do you remember what some of the edits were and which you prefer? Well, it wasn't specifically edits as much as this, the sound, the, the audio and the music and stuff. I don't know if it's just because my first experience seeing that film was with Michael Jackson sitting just behind and next to me with all his entourage, the excitement of that. 
I just have such fond memories of seeing it for the first time. This was like a holy grail for us to see. We'd heard about this film and we're like, how are we going to see this? Is it going to come out in Australia? What are we doing? And it was another one of the things. Didn't know that was going to happen. We were there for the tour and then it just kind of was announced that this was going on. We got invited to the premiere. And I have such fond memories of that that I feel like I have to say I definitely prefer that original version. Basically, the differences were primarily... The Skeleton Dance was a completely different soundtrack and The Mare, Michael, as The Mare dancing uh, was a completely different soundtrack. Uh, there was also an, an effect, a visual effect when uh, The Mare turns into The Mare Ghoul that was okay in the original version, but I think it's a better match when it cuts to the next shot. It's, it's improved in the new version. So for the visual effect, I would say that the new version's probably better. But I don't know, I just have a soft spot for the original soundtrack because for those who haven't seen it, and I'm not sure if it's even available, I have like a film transfer on a, a VHS that I've transferred to a DVD. And I don't know if other people have seen it, it's probably on YouTube. But essentially when the skeleton, he turns into the skeleton and he begins the dance, it's kind of like a custom-designed track that he's dancing to that is very percussive. It almost sounds like bones in a way. It's got percussive elements, and it's very tailored to the movements of what's happening in the dance. And it's basically uh, like a breakdown or a remix of the Too Bad song as the bass. Yep. So it's kind of a riff on that, but it yep. fits really, really well. In the new version, they've just dubbed it over with the song Is It Scary?, which is a great track and it has a good vibe to it, but it's a bit weird for me because the skeleton's not actually singing. So you're hearing Michael's voice singing the song and it feels to me like all of a sudden it goes into music video mode where the song's just dubbed over the top. And it's the same thing when the mayor dances in the new version, they've dubbed over the song Ghost. And it used to be, again, a similar thing, a really percussive thing. There was all these cool little sound effects and things in the percussive track when he does the sideways moonwalk and, and the crotch grab. Everything was just so comedic and suited to that little mere dancing performance. And now it's just dubbed over with the song Ghost, which again, it's got Michael's vocals singing on it, which is great but the mayor's not singing, so it's just more like a music video overlay and you're not really getting to feel like he's actually dancing to that as much. So for me, I yeah, I struggle to get into the new version as much. I just much prefer the original version. It just felt like it was tailored to what was actually happening on screen. Um, so those are the main changes. Um, okay. has, have, have people seen that original version? Is that available? They've stripped a lot of the ghosts off YouTube. I actually, last night when I watched it again, I found it on Vimeo and it had Arabic subtitles on it. <laughs> and that was the only way I could find it because it's not, the whole film is not really on okay. YouTube. Funny enough, you can find the 1993 is a scary version on YouTube, you know, work print, you know, with shots missing and stuff like that. You can find that with the Adams family elements on YouTube, but you can't find the actual ghosts film on YouTube at the moment. Adam, what was your first experience coming across the ghosts short film? You know, I had heard about it forever, but I, I, there was no way to see it here. For some mm. reason, America was just sort of skipped. And yeah. I, I've got like some theories on that because 
you know, Ghost came out. It was it was ninety three, right? Uh, ninety six was when it came out in the cinema at the end of oh, ninety six, and they only they premiered it in Australia and then in Japan, and then it disappeared. Then they put it on but the Cannes the Film it Festival on, as well. Yeah, that was ninety seven. By the time they put it on, oh. on TV and released it in the Ghost Box set, that was the new version, nineteen ninety seven. And just by the way, it was because they boxed it up with the Blood on the Dance Floor album. Yeah. Uh, they kind of wanted that to be the soundtrack, which is the reason why they probably said, or someone said to Michael, you've got to put songs into the film so that, you know, it's like can be the soundtrack and we'll pack it all up and box it into a set. But that was 97. Originally, I think Mick Garris was supposed to direct it and then yeah. he left to do the Shining remake. But it started in 93. And it was yeah. Michael's answer to the accusations and the, you know, it's, it's not subtle in what yeah. it's saying. And I think that might have had something to do with why even when it was ready to come out, it, it just didn't really do much in America. So I didn't see it for the first time until there was internet and it was online. It was probably on YouTube, which usually as soon as it goes up on YouTube, it gets taken down. I've always ended up having to watch it elsewhere, uh, which is a shame. Like, I, I wish we could get, uh, you know, high quality Blu-ray of, mm. of all of that stuff. Uh, We're waiting. But, yeah. Uh, but it was, um, I, I much prefer Thriller, even though Ghosts has like, the kitchen sink thrown at it. Like, mm. I mean, there is everything in it and it's, it's so long and which is great. Uh, every Michael Jackson thing that I ever see, I always wish it was longer or there was just one more <laughs> thing, you know, even just if we, if you look at the dancing, just from a, a filmmaking perspective with, with thriller, it's such a classic movie and there's so many wide shots where you can see the dance number that they're doing to the point yeah. that, People all over the world know that dance, but with ghosts, it's cutting constantly and it, it, it feels more like a music video for about 20 minutes there. Other than, you know, the, the sort of classic Michael Jackson moves, like when the skeleton does the moonwalk or, you know, certain things that he had done around the bad era. I don't really know what that dance is that they're doing because you can't really connect with it. The beginning of, of Ghosts, like the first 10 minutes and the end, especially Michael in the what I think is the Tom Snedden suit. Uh, it, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just spectacular. And it's, it's awesome. But Thriller is just, uh, I mean, perfect. Every single frame is just perfect. I think Ghost is all. I kind of look at a lot of the way Ghost came out. I, I can, it's just in a way, it's purely from what Michael wanted to do, and often that didn't connect as well. Like back in the day with Thriller, it was like classic. But this is the kind of stuff that Michael evolved into doing, and it reminds me a lot. You know the breakdown in in Moonwalker for Smooth Criminal, where it kind of goes into that whole riff where they're all sort of like moaning and stamping and and everyone was like what is that that's so weird but that's so where michael's head was at creatively and that's the kind of vibe that he brought with ghosts as well and i think 
maybe with Stan Winston directing, he let Michael just kind of run free to do what he wanted instead of really like trying to hone him in. Because yeah, some of those sections in the middle with the dancers on the ceiling and the and the ghouls and everything is like, wow, this is really long. And you know how Michael was. He loved everything to be really long. You know, the intros to his songs by the time he got to, you know, like Dangerous and stuff, the intros were just like a minute long and stuff like that and extended outros and all that. And he just really liked to... Like he said, he liked people to be nourished by it. And if I had one sort of, yeah, criticism about ghosts, it would probably be along those lines in the fact that it is a little, like, excessive. Like, sometimes it just lingers on a little bit too long in some of those sections to make it as cohesive as something like Thriller, which is very tight and to the point and very sort of easily accessible. This is more a bit like Michael being creative and and trying to explore new things and do all these ideas like he did with Dangerous and History in terms of the albums. It has that feel to it, as opposed to, say, Off the Wall or Thriller, where it was a bit more pure, I guess is probably the word. I think the ghosts also, it shows Michael's real personality. Like You can see his, his childlike nature because it's yeah. it's literally anything he could think of they did and yeah. that it was written by Stephen King and yeah. and Michael and yet it's sort of it just goes all over the place I think I think you're right I think with Stan Winston directing Michael didn't have anybody butting heads with him so if Michael yeah. wanted to do it they did it and it is really cool because of that and it's there's more joy to to ghosts, it just it just looks like he's having so much fun. It was like I don't know. We'd seen a lot of short films slash music videos coming out over the years, but that was really, in my opinion, the first one that was of an epic scale since kind of Moonwalker or something. Like he'd done extended shorts, but all of a sudden he was back in that sort of game where he was doing it large and massive, and it was just like, wow, we're seeing like forty minutes of Michael here in a cinema. And Michael Jackson sitting behind me. No, but it was just like <laughs> unbelievable. It was like really cool. And to see Michael Jackson basically telling himself that he's a weirdo and we don't like you guys and you're a freak. And you forget sometimes that it is Michael as the mayor. And I assume most people have seen the making of Ghost, but there's those awesome clips of Michael dressed as the mayor and he's trying to explain the story and everything. And he's saying, and I'm not Michael Jackson. Don't think I'm Michael Jackson. I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, he just taught me a few moves and he's doing the whole voice and and he becomes that character. And it's just so kind of insane but amazing to just see how aware he was of everything that was thrown at him and he's just putting it back out there on the screen almost saying this is what people are doing to me this is what people think of me and it allows the audience to kind of feel sorry for him hopefully and and sort of go wow that that really isn't fair you know that really doesn't seem just i think that's what he was really going for this whole thing against bigotry and the whole thing and those kinds of people but the part where he actually says all right i'll go and he slams himself into the ground and basically and breaks his face apart and it and it's so like poetic but yet powerful and 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 just so meaningful when his face is falling apart which is almost like a play on, you know, the whole everyone says my face is this and it's falling apart and literally his face is falling apart and then he he passes away and he he's destroyed and that's so powerful. But I I just remember at the premiere and various other screenings, some fans were so upset by that scene and one fan in particular 
came up to me and they were just destroyed and I couldn't understand because I was thinking, wasn't that awesome? And they said, look, that scene where he destroys himself, it just made me realize one day Michael will no longer be with us. And they just couldn't handle that thought. They just hadn't thought about it. So in a lot of ways, watching it now in amongst the fact that Michael has passed and seeing it through those eyes and what people did to him and the way he was treated and how aware he was of that. And also in light of everything that's going on, all the controversy, they're still doing it. And he was talking about it through his creative art back then. And yet right now you watch Ghost and you think, yeah, this is pretty much what's happening right now, even though he's no longer here and they destroyed him. There's a moment towards the very beginning when the mayor is just accusing him of, of being weird and scaring the children. And mm. one of the kids says, oh, do the thing where, and the other one hits him and says, no, that's a secret. And mm. then the mom hits the kid and then the ghost hits the mom. Now, in light of these allegations and what everybody is once again falsely thinking, that moment reads a little bit more sinister. And I think him falling apart was more probably more just about that they could do that with effects now but it's it's so poetic knowing mm. now where it would all go in his real life and mm. and how sad it is but yeah i I've, i watched it again this morning and i felt the same way as i'm sure those fans did who were in the cinema with you where mm. seeing him smash his face apart it's just it's so sad that somebody so talented that was a gift and i know this is where i, I lose some people and i sound like i'm like some sycophant and i am not and and i don't mean to offend anybody who's religious i'm i'm not but everything that he did with his life it was emulating the story of christ like he did all the things that we all say we're going to do or we're supposed to do but he mm. you know he shared his wealth he tried to save people he brought the world together. He was the only thing that the whole world had in common, no matter where you came from or you know your religious connotations, your sexual orientation, everyone knew him and loved him. And mm. that's also dangerous because that's what we do. We, we have celebrities and we love them for a little while. It almost seems like society loves to watch them fall more mm. than, than anything else. And Absolutely. He, he could never get out of that. And uh, something really sad that I hate to admit, I was at Disneyland when he died. I love Disneyland. I think, I think there's something wrong with you if you don't love <laughs> Disney. Um, but I, I remember seeing it on my phone. And the first thing I said out loud was, thank God it's over. And, mm. and I felt like ashamed that that's what came out of my mouth. But it wasn't going to get better. It, it just yeah. wasn't. And, you know, we all wanted to see the comeback of this is it. We wanted to see truth prevail. But in the world of social media and like this witch hunt happening, I mean, the dude's dead and mm. he's still the main target. What you just said really strikes a chord with me because I was like, I was at the memorial in 2009. And one of the things that I think it was Reverend Al Sharpton said was maybe now they will leave you alone. Mm -hmm. And when he said that in the presence of the family and Michael's casket and all the people in that arena, you just thought 
exactly the kind of thoughts that you, you were just saying when you found out. It's like you just felt, yeah, it's almost like, thank now, God. It's now over. you can be at peace. Now you finally. can be at peace. And maybe now they will leave you alone. And what really breaks my heart now is that I, oh, I constantly think back to, that, to those words. Maybe now they will leave you alone. And then 10 years later, no, you know what I mean? It's, it just, uh, yeah, I don't even know what to say. It's just like, what the hell, you know, like seriously. Anyway. Part of the, the reason why we did that episode of the movie Crypt, knowing that in extreme circumstances, it could <laughs> ruin our careers and make us unhireable. You know, I, I didn't, I never really thought it would go that far, but mm -hmm. just knowing that we were bringing a target on our backs was that I think we all, whether we have ever thought about it or not, but we all feel an obligation to his children to protect them. I, you know, I think about it probably too much, but knowing that Paris was having a hard time, and I don't know Paris, I've never met Paris, I don't, I don't need to necessarily ever meet Paris, but I see the things that people say to her, and I think, can you imagine being that age? It's hard enough, but what she gets put through particularly, and I said it to Taj in that episode, like if I can just take one of those punches for him, like I'd be happy yeah. to do. And the same people that are bullying them, if you look at their profiles, they have things like hashtag stop bullying or like they, they don't even know what they're mm. doing. And, and yeah. then if someone, God forbid, does hurt themselves or kill themselves then it's this big outpouring of we need to listen to each other and like you know call this number if you're feeling like do it now don't yeah. do it then but and people people don't always realize the effect that they have on others by what they're doing until it's too late which is a shame but some of the stuff is obvious you know you can see people like michael dealt with so much throughout his entire career and he was clearly aware of it even expressing it through his art like with ghosts Obviously, the big things you get, but even all the little things, it's like you just never know how even the littlest comments or things can affect somebody. And when you're somebody like Michael, just dealing with that every corner, every turn, you put yourself out there in the world, you become so well known. And I guess in a way, he, he always said he had rhinoceros skin. He had to put up with so much and he somehow managed to get through most of it. But that's kind of one of the other things about, about the ghost film when it came out was we were so used to seeing Michael come out and say, I'm Michael Jackson, I'm magic, I'm amazing, look at what I'm doing, and we'd be just like, yes, that's amazing. And it was like he was self-promoting how incredible and awesome and cool he was as an artist and an icon, and you're just going, yes! But then all of a sudden, here he was saying, I'm a freak, I'm a weirdo, I'm this, and, and, I, and I should be, you know, like he's basically persecuting himself on screen for his art. And it, we just weren't used to seeing Michael actually put that into his work in that way i mean in a way through the history album but you know what i mean like through that whole era it was just like wow we're seeing this whole film where he is almost persecuting himself to try i guess bring awareness to what how we should behave like you said earlier people should like michael said you know we shouldn't say we are jesus or whatever but we should emulate and try and do the right thing I think that's what Ghost was about in a lot of ways as well, trying to say, look, this is how you treat people and maybe you should have a bit of a think about why we treat people this way and why people who are different and why we can't just be a little bit more understanding and respectful of differences and 
all that. So yeah, it's a pretty powerful piece of work in that regard. It's one of the biggest differences between Thriller and Ghost, if mm. you look at his eyes. The Michael in Thriller had no idea what kind of pain and suffering he was in for, whereas mm. the Michael in Ghost had now been accused of the mm -hmm. most horrific thing, well, really anybody can be accused of, but him especially. It's like... it. To accuse him of uh, of harming the very thing that he lived for, mm -hmm. uh, and was you know only trying to help and say, and the only reason he agreed to let Bashir do that terrible documentary was because Bashir said he was going to help him promote his International Children's Day, which is nowhere mm -hmm. to be seen in that, mm -hmm. in that <laughs> documentary. It's so sad, and I hope. Just like the stories, whether they're made up or real or whatever, from biblical days all the way through whatever books came out last week, uh, you know, there's stories that are there for a purpose and we're supposed to learn from them. And it feels like when he passed, you know, I remember at the memorial seeing all these signs that said, on behalf of the world, we're sorry. Mm, yeah. And, and thinking maybe now. It's, you know, it's finally over and we're going to learn from this and we're not going to do this to anybody else. But then you saw them doing it to Britney Spears. You saw them doing it like they just, they can't mm -hmm. get enough of seeing mm. famous people who they, you know, they, society assumes that these people think they're invincible. And so they want to see them mm. hurt. They want to see them fall. I think it's Michael's, like the response to the Bashir documentary, they came out with the what you didn't see behind the scenes with Michael's cameras of that interview. Yeah. I think it's at the very end, there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a question that Bashir throws at him and he says, do you sometimes despair for humanity or something like that? And, yeah. and, it's, and Michael just says, yeah, I absolutely do. He says, no matter what you do, no matter how good you be no matter how much you try and do for the world no matter how much positivity or how much goodness you're trying to bring there's always some jerk that tries to bring you down and tries to like be critical or negative uh and i just i love that little clip because it's just so true and so now it's like yes i'm i despair for humanity with everything that's been going on in the world and the michael world it just seems like we're ne never going to learn. People are never going to, you know, everyone has good intentions, but it just seems like people just can't seem to realize what they're doing until it's too late. And it, it, yeah, I think, you know, to, well, look to despair industry. for humanity is pretty, pretty important right now in a way. It's like, that's the way the, we're headed. The industry that you and I work in, Paul, like no other career do, do you have to worry, like if you're, a, a custodian at a office building you don't need mm -hmm. to go home and read all of these people criticizing how you cleaned up the trash that day and making <laughs> up things about you but when you're in the public spotlight at any degree like i i'm like d-level famous like at a, at a horror convention <laughs> yes people know who i am outside of there no it's very rare and still it's but they think they can say anything and now with social media if you're yeah, gonna be on yeah. there and be accessible to your fan base i mean i don't i don't get it too bad but but when you do you're just like who took the time and especially when they make up something about you and it's 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 awful unfortunately social media just seems to have given everybody permission to say whatever they want 
because that's the whole the whole platform is is built on the concept of being able to comment on whatever. So you have you can have your say about everything and anyone, and people just thrive on that and argue and debate. So it's it's the honest, crazy. The honest truth, though, is we were given this thing called the internet and a way to all be connected and to make the world better by being able to share knowledge and art mm. and all these things. But the first two things we used it for were porn and insulting each other anonymously. Because you can say whatever you want and get away with it. Message boards, that's all they were. And so what does that say about humanity that people said, oh, the internet, what is this? Oh, great, I'm going to jerk off and insult somebody. Like that was <laughs> basically what happened. Do you use a spare for humanity? Uh, yeah. <laughs> But I do still have hope and I do, uh, you know, I, I've always, that was the thing that I loved the most about Michael Jackson was Michael Jackson, the person. Like, I'm a metalhead. Like, you look through my record collection, it's all Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith. I've seen these bands like 30, 40 times, but also every Michael Jackson thing. And I've become a much bigger fan since Leaving Neverland came out and I did all of that research because I learned so much that I, I didn't know. Because so much of his humanitarian work was not made public, and he didn't want it to necessarily be made public. That's not why he was doing it. Stopping at a children's hospital at every step of every tour and buying them equipment that they needed and spending real time with these kids at every stop. You know, that, he wasn't trying to get news cameras from every local city to make sure people saw him doing it. That's, he just did it because, you know, there's that great story that his manager tells about how there was a, a boy who was clearly uh, on his last few days and he, you know, he wasn't going to make it. So the manager steps outside of the, the room because he couldn't take it. And when Michael came out, he said, this is our job, not dancing and singing on stage it's this this is what we're here for and he he practiced what he preached and not just through financial donations but physically being there with these people and so what did we do we're like oh this guy's doing it right let's crucify him <laughs> that's it's sad that that's what it is but i i hope that out of all of this is something better is going to happen. We just we just recorded a podcast that comes out uh, the middle of October with children. Uh, it was the first time we ever did an episode on on child actors. I do a, a Halloween short film every year. This year is the twenty first one, and there were three children in it. And when I was speaking to them, it gave me so much hope. And I hope anyone who hears that episode feels the same way. But Presley, who was the young girl, she's 14, she was saying that her generation is very outspoken. You know, they very much value their own opinions about anything, but they also can listen to each other and they can debate. And I don't know if that just because one girl said it, if that is really true. But our generation with social media, we only follow like minded people. We don't follow anybody who we disagree with or who thinks differently for the most part. And so we're all in these little chambers preaching to the choir and, you know, knowing that what we post will be approved. And then God forbid somebody who thinks differently, their post got retweeted and you saw it and then everyone gangs up on them. 
and it, it's I hope that what she was saying was true because it that it's that's how it really comes down to is being not just heard but being able to listen and we could fix it but I, I mean I'm sure you guys are well aware of what's happening in my country like we, we just had two mass shootings in one day and it's now gotten to the point where it's literally like in today's mass shooting happened here or this week mm-hmm. it's a regular thing when columbine happened that was like 9-11 big it was obviously as it was before but it was no one could believe that somebody brought a gun into a school it, you, you couldn't fathom it and it had happened before just not in a upper middle class white neighborhood it was it was so horrible and now it happens all the time and the fact that our children have to do drills at school where they have to practice what to do in case of a mass shooting i can't believe we've accepted it or that we're still arguing about the guns not the mental health which is the real problem but nobody wants to deal with that to bring this back to michael it was like there was a mass shooting that there was a a, a famous one in uh, i think it was in watts and he was like the first one there, paid for the mm-hmm. funerals of the kids, paid for the hospital bills, but actually spoke to the kids and told them, don't be, don't be afraid to come to school again. Like, yeah. we could do better than this. And that, you know, wasn't on the news. But it's, he was trying, always, always trying. And that's why I looked up to him so much. I wanted to be like that. Even if I would never be that famous, but... In my own little world, whatever level of reach I did have with my art, I was going to try to encourage people that they can do it, to not accept no for an answer, to not get discouraged or disenchanted and let their hearts be broken by anybody else and to keep getting back up again and to do good. And I feel like I've done that to some degree, but that was because of Michael.
Hi, I'm Andy Healy, author of the MJ101 series, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Folks, heading back to the films themselves, I really can't wait to hear from you both about the cinematography and the creation and actual filmmaking side for both of these. They're both very different. I think my first question would be, looking at both of these short films, Thriller and Ghosts, were they each filmed in a way that suited TV or cinema more? When you look at Thriller, it starts with a crane shot where the, you know, the camera's up in the air and it slowly comes down as the car is, is driving up. I mean, you weren't really seeing that in music videos of the time. Mm. And it was a, you were watching a film. Everything about it was a film. It was shot on film, so automatically it looked different. And mm. you know, it's easy to say, yeah, well, he had the money to throw at something like that, but he he really didn't. The label <laughs> wasn't going to do that. And you know, thankfully, they were able to come up with this plan of pre-selling the making of, and that was how they financed it. But everything that Michael did. Like when you look at the average music video at the time, a lot of them were being directed by people that just wanted to catch a break to get into features. And we saw so many, I mean, David Fincher, there's so many who started in music videos. Mm. But Michael went straight to the top and he loved American Werewolf, even though he wasn't a horror fan at that time. But American Werewolf was funny. American Werewolf, incidentally, was my biggest inspiration for Hatchet. And he just went, get me that guy. And so he went right to the top and he got all the best people in the field, but then allowed them to flex and, and push the boundaries and, and do, do something without being in the oppressive studio system and make a classic short film. And it shows in every single shot. It, it's, mm. it's still perfect to this day. And I mean, nothing will ever top that. There were, there's been very big, extravagant music videos for sure. I mean, Guns N' Roses, their video for November Rain, which yeah. if you ever get the chance, I think it's on YouTube or it was Funny or Die. It was like, why November Rain is the dumbest video ever made. It is so funny when, when you actually <laughs> think about what's happening in the video. And that's one of my favorite bands. But Still, it's it wasn't just about how fancy it could be. It was because it's really a B movie when you when you yeah. look at it. It's a short B movie, but it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we we all know that Michael was always striving to do not just a music video. His whole thing, that's why he always would say, no, it's a short film, not a music video, was because of the fact that he wanted it to feel like a mini movie and he wanted it to feel cinematic. And that's what he did in all of his work or strived to do. And that's definitely the case with, with Thriller and Ghosts, obviously. You know, Thriller, like you just said, was was every intention to make it as cinematic as possible and the same with ghost it's like let's let's get the best people in hollywood and make you know the best special effects and make it all amazing and exciting as cinematic as we can the cut most cutting edge technology at the time was always his thing he wanted to sort of push everything to the limit so in his vision absolutely these were intended as cinematic short films as opposed to music videos although in both cases they did pretty much shoot them for for a 4-3 kind of format because they knew that primarily most of them would be shown in those days on a square 4x3 tv yeah. Um, so 
in a way, yeah, they weren't really designed for cinematic distribution. And back then, cinematic distribution was very different to TV. And there wasn't a thing whereby you could watch cinematic stuff at home in a widescreen format. So it was either cinematically widescreen, whichever ratio it is, for the cinema, and then they would put it back to 4.3 and open it up for television or various other processes they do. So in a way, they, they did shoot it knowing that primarily it would be a 4.3 format if you wanted to talk on a technical level. But in terms of creativity, visually, absolutely, they were going for as cinematic as possible to make it as much like a, a cinematic film rather than just a music video. I'm trying to remember, was it Letterboxd when it aired on MTV? To my knowledge, like neither Ghosts or Thriller has ever been presented in letterbox format, yeah, except I, I cinematically on like Thriller, they did cinematically with a with a letter. Well, as in one eight five, but yeah. um, but yeah, because uh, I was actually trying to remember when I saw Ghosts in the cinema whether or not they actually presented it in like a one eight five sort of cinematic widescreen presentation. But I I've, I dug up another video I had which was actually a bootleg recording someone filmed back in 1996 in, in the cinema in, in Australia when they were did a, about a week of screenings. They said, we're going to put it in cinemas for a week because Michael's here and they did the premiere. And I dug out that video and it's kind of cool actually because this was at the time the audience reaction. You can hear how they're laughing, how they're responding to the effects, the performance, the dance. So it's kind of got that cool kind of vibe to it. But Interestingly, uh, it looks like it was screened in 4.3, so that's kind of, uh, I think, to my knowledge, the only way it's ever been shown for ghosts. That's a nice little bit of information. Nice. <laughs> lucky, that's, lucky you've kept all these random videos that you've collected over the years, Paul. Yeah. I have yeah, 300 VHS tapes in a box with bits and pieces and clips and compilations, and it's my own little mini old-school YouTube and I'm sure most of it's most of it's available on YouTube, but every now and again I find out like, no, nope, that's not available. Even some of the ghost stuff you're talking about sounds like they've pulled a lot of it down. It's like, oh wow, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. That's the thing with digital distribution; they can edit and take things down however they feel like it. Well, that's always my thing. I like to make sure I own stuff, so I, that's why I was brought up in a in a, a collector's mentality. I like the idea okay. of actually physically owning it and in the quality or the format that I want, and I know that it's always there. It actually frustrates me when I go through YouTube sometimes and you want to watch something, but you have to actually spend five minutes trying to check each different version and go, well, this version's kind of the wrong aspect ratio, but this version's better quality. This version's got subtitles. This version's got trying to find you know, a good quality version of something. It's just annoying to me. I'd rather much, much rather have it on my shelf or something and go, here, I own it or I have my own copy. I trust it and enjoy it. With music, it's like, you know, I've, yeah. I've always collected vinyl and it, it yeah. just sounds so much better. I get, you know, digital is great because you can carry your whole music collection in your phone, but <laughs> it, it doesn't compare, even just the artwork and, and holding a record. And, yeah. Yeah. booklet the booklet yeah. that you get to well, yeah exactly oh, i don't know if that. fans would would not any newer michael fans would understand or appreciate there was a certain ritual when you got a new michael album that was released there was something about sitting down in your favorite location or whatever with yeah. the cd cover looking at the tracks as they played through 
going through the booklet, potentially reading the lyrics and exploring the album that way. I mean, for me, I always used to listen to it once in the dark with headphones. Oh, my God, the same thing. Same yep. thing. That's what I did. Yeah, I get and the vinyl like, and the CD, and that's that's yeah. Yeah. And you'd be like, this is my ritual. And, and then you go, okay, maybe if I've done that once or twice, then I want to do a pass where I actually have the light on a bit and I go through with the booklet and read all the lyrics that <laughs> exactly. goes through. You're holding it wow. in your hand. You're feeling the joy. It's a bit of a lost sort of experience now. And the pictures, uh, like, you know, even the pictures that were in there, like the history CD booklet and album booklet and even the box set, sort of cassette booklet, the amount of yeah. pictures that were in there and artwork was just phenomenal. Thriller, the album, had all those like little drawings of yeah. monsters and horror stuff yeah. and in I remember the record. The, the vinyl of Thriller would always confuse me when I was younger because I was like, what are these extra lyrics to, I think it was Lady in My Life or something, yes. these words, yes. you know how they, they print the lyrics basically from the last version that was officially registered or whatever, and they go, these are the lyrics, but then over the creative process, it changes. By the time they finally release and mix the, the album, it's like, actually, we took that verse out or we did this, the other. and then you'd be reading these lyrics going, ooh, I can imagine the melody and how that would sound, but it's not actually on the recording, but that's what you get when you're holding the product and you can kind of explore what, what they've put and Michael's and, little yeah, drawings. And here we are, 10 years after his death, and we just passed the 10th anniversary. And look, I'll, I can blame Leaving Neverland for anything wrong in the world. Like, if there was an earthquake, it was Leaving Neverland's fault. But like, <laughs> if it was, hadn't been for that, I would hope we would have gotten... Uh, you know, a box set with, you know, all the records, because some of them, they're only available in picture discs, like mm -hmm. History and Invincible. And, you know, I guess some people think that that's cool, but I would much rather have something with a real cover and with yeah. extra stuff in it. But like Prince, we got one of those. Tom Petty, we've gotten one of those, but nothing from Michael Jackson. Well, that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, yeah. we've been waiting a long time. And then I remember right at the time when Michael passed, you know, within that year, I remember thinking, wow, the vibe is so exciting in terms of celebrating his music that I thought for sure there's going to be a stream of all of this stuff coming out. Yeah. And for various reasons, it hasn't really you know, come to fruition. We're still waiting. And now it looks like, you know, with everything going on, there's probably a setback. And the other thing, which is unfortunate, is that the distribution market has pretty much turned a corner where people really aren't thinking about physical product and releasing a box set or a Blu-ray, which yeah. means we may we may never get it because it used to be a whole idea of this is going to be great. We'll remaster it. We'll package it up. We'll do some behind the scenes. You know, I had so many friends that worked in DVD content, bonus features behind the scenes. That's a pretty much a dying thing now because they just don't have that distribution model to say, let's do all this stuff for the DVD package or the Blu-ray release. No, so we have to do you it just, ourselves. If, yeah, you kind of... <laughs> like, if you want to make it and give it to us, we'll put it on. We'll but put it on. Other exactly. than that, we don't care. And we, for the Hatchet series in particular, the first three films, they start and stop on the same frame that the last one ended on. And oh, the wow. whole point was that eventually we would put out a supercut that's because it was originally only going to be a trilogy and it was just going to be the three films put together as one and it would all cut together flawlessly and now no distributor because you would have to pay to remaster it to remix it if you yeah. were going to do that and nobody is going to pay for that because it 
just physical media is gone. And, you know, for collectors like us, we still live for that. But mm. the average person, they're happy streaming it and that's it. Yeah. Well, we're hoping for, for Ghost to come out one day because the highest it ever got was a was a VCD in Japan release. They did release it on a video disc, which was a kind of a thing for a while there. And then the VHS official release as part of the box set um, is the highest quality that most of the world ever saw of Ghost was a VHS that has then been transferred to various bootleg DVDs or up, or uploads. Um, it's just a shame that you can't see it in all its glory because it, it is a really beautiful looking thing. And I can't even tell you how exciting it was to see Michael Jackson in Ghosts, full frame in a cinema screen, like he I just can't imagine. Amazing, yes. like it was oh. like in in you know it just looked so good, and you just like wow, he really looked pretty cool in that, and that was really exciting to see it in high quality on a big screen, and now we're sort of reduced to seeing it on a small screen from a VHS transfer. Basically, it's kind of heartbreaking, really. Uh, Adam, yeah. did you get to see Thriller when it was in IMAX cinemas last year? I HD? Didn't. When that came out, I was either shooting or I was on tour, but I there was you know there was like a three week window I think to to get to see it and I didn't and I was so upset because I'm mean, just certain things you have to see them in the theater like a new Star Wars movie like there's no yeah. way you're just seeing that at home for the first time no I mean and I have a great home theater but nothing like you know an IMAX screen obviously and yeah. I didn't get to see it and I'm always going to regret that but I, I it exists. So it hopefully they'll do, it, they'll do it again someday. Yeah. Paul, you got to see it. And I remember we heard from you seeing it in the cinema, like, you know, all cleaned up and fixed up and mm. presented beautifully. I guess when you see it in that format, um, you know, the cinematography really comes together in the, the perfect way. Like, you know, the shot composition, the photography, the editing and stuff. So, you know, from seeing that, mm. what sort of steps did the production back in the 80s take to achieve that big budget movie on, I guess, a short film's budget? Well, essentially, it always comes down to, yeah, what the source material is. Like, they always talk about remastering things, but it comes down to the source material. For example, if you've ever seen, like, a trilogy or something where the first movie was kind of very low-budget independent and then it became huge and then they released a second one with a bigger budget and a third one, and then you get the, the remastered versions of all of those and people say, why does the first one look so kind of crappy? It's like, well, that's kind of the budget and the source material and the stock they shot it on and the, the level of preservation all that kind of stuff but back in the day when they were doing thriller they were really trying to make it as cinematic as possible so they really shot it well they had great cinematography and lighting and they had all the typical hollywood film crew do it not a bunch of advertising music video commercials kind of people they actually had film professionals do this as if it was a major feature film and so when you then go and remaster that and bring out everything that was there it was already there it was the quality of the original production was really really high quality so yeah seeing it on a big screen is like really seeing that for the first time again which i didn't think was possible considering the amount of times i have watched that <laughs> and the, the you know worn out the vhs and all those kinds of things you've seen it you feel like i've seen it even <laughs> Even like when Q said, oh, we're going to talk about Thriller and Ghosts, so maybe watch Thriller and Ghosts before the show when we talk about 
I'm thinking, I've seen them before. I'm pretty sure I know what they're about. But then, you know, if you watch them again, you just, sometimes you just, you can never get, it never gets old and there's always new things you're seeing. But yeah. on a big screen, it's it's epic. And um, I, I mean, clearly they've got now the, the the remasters of all of that. And I believe even the making of Thriller, they remastered the whole thing. So it was on target or on track to to get some form of a, uh, digital or Blu-ray release, by the sounds of it. I remember talking I... to to George Falsey Jr., the the editor back in 2010, uh, who edited and produced Thriller, and he was like, "Yeah, we're converting it to 3D, and we're gonna do all this stuff with it." And and then it took like you know almost a decade before anything with all the stuff that was going on and problems and this, that, and the other backwards and forwards. There's always, I guess, this is the thing. There's always something standing in the way of the art. You know what I mean? Which is always the biggest tragedy. In, in the world of Michael is there's always something standing in the way of just purity and art. And it's really frustrating when you just want to enjoy and appreciate something. And, and we've got all this other stuff we have to deal with, which is such a shame. Who knows if it's going to come out or if they're going to re-release it in the cinemas. We'll, we'll see, I, I guess. I did get to see the remastered and extended version of the making of. Uh, Great. At, I saw it in London. Uh, at a festival called Fright Fest. And it was, I think it was the 25th, maybe, anniversary of American Werewolf. So I was sitting with Landis, and mm. he's pointing out stuff, posters in, in the background of, of, yeah. of Werewolf and stuff. And then when they yeah. showed that extended uh, making of Thriller, which was, was a surprise screening, they hadn't announced it. Yeah. And it, it was just... Uh, because you know, I knew that thing like the back of my hand. That was like how I learned how to make movies at first. Like that, yeah, and when, yeah. when PBS would show the making of Star Wars or Empire, or you yeah. know, but it was or, to, or Captain EO. Yeah, but <laughs> to see even just a a frame of something new that you hadn't seen before was was so exciting. Whatever it was, even if it was just my. How, how much do you reckon there was? Like, how much more footage do you reckon was added? I wish I had been paying more attention because I didn't, if he had said, oh, and this is longer, or there's some extra stuff in this, I, I think I would have, because instead I kept thinking, oh, I don't remember that, or oh, I can't believe I yeah. forgot that. And then I realized yeah. this isn't exactly the same. So I was yeah. really just captivated with how good it looked. And uh, and I don't know really what. But did it feel like that. a lot, or did it feel like oh, it's a few extra minutes here and there, or did it feel like whoa, this is heaps of stuff we haven't seen? To me, it it seemed like a ton, but I'm sure if you asked somebody who is not as into it, they would probably say, yeah, there were a few more little things here or there, but it wasn't that different. I thought it was different. So did they not screen the actual film itself in? high def for that i don't know i they might have shown thriller before they showed the making of that would make sense but yeah. uh, i was doing press and so oh, i didn't okay. get in until like five minutes into the the making of oh so right yeah i have a feeling they again, might have shown the whole film as well but there you go i'm sure they did i'm sure they did yeah and even the making of ghosts like that was not on the vhs when it came out and I had a copy of it as for some bootleg, wherever it came from, from some country that 
you know, had subtitles on. I can't even remember where. And I don't know if any of that made it onto YouTube, but there was like, you know, there was there was like a 10-minute version and there was like a 20-minute version of all of this behind the scenes of Ghosts. And that was never even actually released. It was very rare if it even got shown on any kind of like TV stations around the world. So yeah, there's so much there that has never been officially released and or even shown in high quality. Let's That's hope for that. Oh, one day we we want to buy this. This is the stuff we want to buy. This is crazy, we, right? I we mean, want to know about the cinematography. We want to know about the making of this stuff as well as the actual product. Like, think about that. We're literally begging them to take our money so we can buy things that we already own and have seen yeah, a million times. Exactly. We just want a, a different cover or something extra and we'll buy it again <laughs> on every format and they're not doing it. Just, I know. It was coming back to what I was saying before. In, in 2009, like there was already a huge fan base for Michael fans. And when this whole, you know, high definition Blu-ray, let's release it on DVD and then and then Blu-ray, there was a market there with the with the Michael fan base that if they had a released any of this stuff there was a market for it. But then once he passed, that market exploded. And for about a year at least into probably two years, there was such a demand. I remember, you know, going down to Amoeba Records in LA and which is this massive, you know, city. I live there. Store. there. Yeah. <laughs> they do vinyl, they do this, they do collectibles. You can even buy Laserdisc there, et cetera, secondhand. It's an amazing, amazing, massive place. They were selling out of everything. And then online, YouTube stuff was going crazy. eBay was going nuts. Basically, everyone was buying up everything. Michael trying to get their hands on everything they could. And and that that was the window, you know. There was a window there where everybody was interested, and anything that they had have released and put out, we would have bought. But also the extended population of the world who were celebrating his music. A lot of people got into it that way and were desperately trying to get anything. So if, if during you know two thousand and let's say ten eleven, if people had have been able to go online and see that there's a victory tour of the one of the greatest concerts he ever did available you can buy in blu-ray or the bad tour or you can get the ghost box set with the making of or the thriller with the making of you know people would have bought it and it would have become one of the biggest selling products because those were michael's true masterpieces you know everyone accepts that thriller is one of the greatest things that was ever done in music history and People would love to own that in high quality when the market was there. It would have been huge. Everyone yeah. would have been like, yeah, let's buy that. Let's buy this. But now the market's gone. The distribution model's changed. So we'll see what happens in the future. But, you know, maybe it'll just be easier to remaster stuff and make it available for download on the, on, on the official website or something. Who knows? We'll see and hope. As long as they give us making of stuff. Just give us the making of stuff. That's, yeah. I want to see the behind the scenes I love mm -hmm. the creation stuff. Adam, as a filmmaker, yes. director, uh, have you got anything you'd like to talk about with like the shot composition, the camera movement, photography, the cinematography of both of these films? Well, I think uh, in some of this, it, it's pretty obvious, I guess. But like, you know, with Thriller, the fact that they shot on film and when what little you do get to see from the making of, and I think people like Paul and myself can tell just by watching it, but the fact that whenever they could, that, that Landis stayed on longer lenses, because longer lenses, just like a little kind of crash course in depth of field for 
people that aren't filmmakers. If your camera is like very close to your subject, then chances are pretty much 100% that everything in the frame is going to be in focus, meaning your subject and the background. But if you can get your camera further away and shoot on a longer lens, like a 100 millimeter lens, then you can control exactly what you want in focus. And when your subject's in focus and the background or even just the zombies dancing a foot or two feet behind Michael are just a little bit softer, it makes the whole image so much more dynamic. And that combined with the fact that it was shot on film, because even, even digital, like up until maybe, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, you could always tell immediately when something was being mm. shot digitally, uh, especially if there was rain or fire or blood splatter or even just a quick camera movement you can immediately see that it, you weren't really watching film it's come mm. such a long way just in the past decade which is great but but thriller is shot in such a classic way it's told like a story and it's just there's not there's by comparison to other music videos of the time there's hardly any cuts in it because music videos that's mm. almost like a, a term that people use mtv yeah. style music video style of just cut 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 which is what ghosts did with the dance numbers and what i was saying before about how i've never been able to you know i'm not a dancer or anything but i've never been able to really connect to the dancing in ghosts anywhere near like i could with thriller mm. uh, like i am the whitest metal head <laughs> you know but even I can do the thriller dance badly, <laughs> but I can do it. I know what it is. Mm. Um, so I think that made a, a big difference. But just letting it breathe and letting mm. you be there. And another thing, too, it's not so much technical, but the tone. The tone of thriller is, it's you know, it's fun, but you really do feel, especially the first time you see it, that, that, that Ola is in danger. A couple of times in that and mm. in ghosts you never feel like anybody's actually in danger the whole thing is very kind of cartoony and comic bookish like i compare it to like beetlejuice or yeah. even the mask the jim carrey movie which uh, you know i think there's a few things michael does to his face that are like <laughs> they do that in in the mask as well but tonally thriller is just it's it's a film that is like a serious film, even though it's fun. But Ghosts is just so much spectacle. And I think that's why I gravitate to Thriller. I've always done all practical effects in my mm -hmm. films. And I think the audience really appreciates that. But, you know, even though digital has come a long way, there is something different about actual prosthetic makeup on a performer's face and a digitally made kind of cartoon character that's there. When you can marry the two, that's that's when you're firing on all cylinders because mm. there's always something about the practical that wasn't quite right. There's a seam showing or there's just something you wish you could fix. And now you can do that digitally. But too many people just lean on fixing it in post, which those are probably... Paul's <laughs> favorite words in the world to hear, although they'll fix it later. 
Um, yeah. Editors never get enough credit. I mean, the editors make the movie. It doesn't matter how good or bad what you shot is. That's sorry. This is just a slight little <laughs> off-topic thing. But how can they tell when they give an Oscar who the best editor really was? Because maybe yeah. there was something that was unwatchable until yeah. the editor fixed it. You know, like exactly. you don't know. Well, they call editing the invisible art because that's basically what it is. If you've done a good job, you basically can't see or th even think about the editing. It's just you're so absorbed in what's going on that that's mm -hmm. when you've done great editing. And the problem is when you take something that is in trouble and it's not working and you turn it in with your brilliance and your magic into something that works brilliantly, judging that for an editing award, people can't tell unless they can magically see where it came from which they don't usually get to do so primarily the editing awards often get judged on the things that are so obviously edited whether it's like a non-linear film or something mm -hmm. that's got a lot of flashbacks or cutaways or something like a you know like a moulin rouge which is clearly edited in a certain way it's very flashy or you know baz luhrmann stuff or you know edgar wright stuff there is so there's like an editing style that's kind of almost really pushing it in your face those are the films that often get noticed for editing and it's like coming back to what you were saying thriller you don't like q was asking me oh let's talk about the editing and i'm thinking ah the editing i mean i'm an editor this is what i do i see everything to do with editing everything i watch but i'm so absorbed in thriller and what michael's doing I don't really think about the editing too much. And it comes back to what... Good. Exactly, but it comes back to what you were saying. It's so pure. It's basically letting the dance be. The whole the old Fred Astaire trick of you need to see the dance from head to toe and not cut in close or cut away. And, you know, there's that iconic close-up of Michael on his toes in the middle of Thriller, which enhances what's going on, and it's pretty cool. But for the most part, you are able to sit back and just let the dance sort of absorb you and you feel like you're just seeing it in 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 all its glory it's like you're there and if you're seeing it you know on a massive big screen or in 3d it's even like wow you're it's like you're literally seeing this with thriller landis was observing the brilliance of michael jackson exactly. and and then that's the, what we the, did as an the, audience the purity of what michael was at that time he was so exciting and talented and incredible and pure that people, all you had to do was point the camera at him. By the time we got to Ghost, everyone had seen so much and everybody had done so much and there'd been so many more things, you know, evolutions in music videos and music and technologies and video and everything that they always seemed to feel like they had to work harder to try and do something new and different. And the end result is often quite a stretch away from being just pure it's sort of you know we've got to have like cool effects and the dancing's got to become more complex more percussive more you know unique elements and we're going to cut all these fast-paced cuts and editing which can be exciting and interesting but it's a very different kind of beast to with what michael though we just wanted him we just yeah. wanted to watch him dance and uh you know there's that was it I don't remember which award show it was, but what, that that one performance of Dangerous that it's like MTV. that's everyone's go-to. Yeah, the MTV one, and it is just like when when you can just have like a wider shot and just watch and yeah. and not have to be cutting, 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 and all these crazy angles. Yeah. Uh, it, it's that's when it's that's when it's it's best. 
And what's crazy about that MTV performance is it's just purely about the dance. Like you would never see something like that today on an award show because if you look at that, there's basically no props, stage sets or background or video screens or anything. It's basically just a white cyclorama behind that they've kind of thrown a bit of light onto. And that's it. There's nothing. They're just left completely exposed on a stage with no background, no nothing. And they're just... Even their all- their, their wardrobe, just black and white suits. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that was that was quite pure. You know, I remember that at the time was just like, wow, it, you were so absorbed in in the performance and the dance. Nowadays, you know, everything's about like let, we got to have a million cuts. And we, like, it's interesting. I was at the American Music Awards last year, and I think there were various performances. But Taylor Swift opened the show and had the whole thing going on with all the extravagance and all that kind of stuff. Big flashy thing. And when you were watching it in person, it was like, okay, that's that's pretty cool. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's very exciting. But when I watched it back on the on the the TV broadcast or whatever, it just totally missed everything. It didn't capture anything of the performance. They kept cutting super fast to all these different things, the close-ups, the angles on her. You just you just really didn't feel or see anything. And I was like, huh? Because they didn't trust the performance. They felt like they had to sell it to you and make and keep telling you you are excited, you are loving yeah. this different genre of music. But one time. Aerosmith toured with Kiss. Now, yeah. everyone, whether you're a fan or not, knows that Kiss has just nonstop explosions and fire. They're flying. <laughs> They're, you know, in the audience. Aerosmith was just them. There was just a curtain behind them. And, yep. and they played second. And they would open with Let the Music Do the Talking. And it was just, yeah. it was so true. But that was yeah. when, that's when it is the most fun to watch Michael is when, you can really see the brilliance of what he's doing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's what Ghost is missing. I think it me. was also like everyone knows that with Michael, yes, he, like, not, none of these other artists really in the pop world, at least, really can get away with just pointing a camera at them because they're honestly, they just don't have enough charisma or magic or that thing that only Michael had. Yeah. But, I think what the problem was, in a way, if you call it a problem, was I think Michael was so into trying to push the boundaries and he wanted the latest technology, all the cutting edge, everything. And so I think he was really pushing to go there. And and as a result, everything, like you look at, like we said earlier, the progression from the Off the Wall album through to something like Dangerous and then History, it's like there's so much more going on. There's so much more complexity. And in a way, that makes it like so much more there's more depth to it you can explore it there's so much more going on and so much you know behind it all and it's incredibly masterful but it's a different approach to just the purity of like everyone comes back to Motown 25 and you know just that's and Martin Scorsese said it you know just so simple so clean so pure one of the best performances things he's ever seen it's like that's what that was but every time Michael performed Billie Jean on tour after that it was never quite the same. It was never quite that original purity. And I guess, you know, that's because I guess it's a different scenario. There's all sorts of lighting and production going on. But he did usually take center stage for Billie Jean. There weren't other dancers when he would perform it live. Like that was his moment, uh, even in the years where it was like, the spotlight just on the you know the hat and he put yeah. the hat on and the, uh, the performance of Billie Jean from the Bad Tour at Wembley the DVD that they put out 
I think that out of all the VHS DVD that they put out, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> once like the proper part of the song is over and it's just him dancing through till the end, yeah. and it is just, like that. That and that dangerous performance from that MTV Awards show. I think those are probably my two go tos. Where yeah. I'll ask somebody like, "Have you ever seen him?" live because i never got to see him in person live because he didn't he didn't really perform in america once yeah. i was old enough to be going but at the end of billy jean at wembley when he throws the hat into the audience every time and i know it's coming but i always get so nervous where i'm like you can't do that at a michael jackson <laughs> people are gonna kill each other for that thing <laughs> yeah 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 no i don't know i think i think i think there's there's probably two schools of thought you know you got thriller is very pure and and ghost is far more elaborate and there's a lot more going on but i guess if it wasn't maybe it would be compared too much to thriller like yes. that's the thing what can we do he was probably thinking what can we do to make this bigger and better and more beyond what we did in thriller i guess it's the same with you know you know any kind of sequel series in films you know we like how do we top the last one how do we give them what what they want and know and love but take it to another level and usually it involves becoming far more complex much more we got to make it bigger and better and more stuff going on and I guess, you know, coming back to Q's question, it's it's probably a sign of the times as well. The, the time when Absolutely. Ghost was done was at that exact moment in, in history in terms of where were we at with visual effects. It was only five years after Terminator 2, which was probably the big turning point for visual effects. And then Michael used that at the end of Black or White, those effects. And and so, you know, and it was like, you know, four or four, four years before Phantom Menace. So it's kind of like just when digital effects were sort of starting to be explored. And I guess the style of, of, of dancing and performing and editing for music videos was a lot more, there was a lot more going on. So um, he also I mean, exactly what you're saying, though, where he made, he knew whatever he did, especially that it was going to be within the horror genre, it was going to be directly compared to Thriller, and no matter what he did, it wasn't going to be as good. No matter, even if it was better, nobody was yeah. going to see it that way. So exactly. stylistically, he did something that couldn't be directly compared, which was really smart. So yeah. he had to give the audience something that was so different in tone, in look, yeah. in complete package. Here's the kitchen sink in Ghosts. Yeah, but yeah. he tried to bring, I think, some of the elements that made say thriller work into ghosts i guess special effects is part of it like special effects and thriller were pretty cutting edge of the time you know they had mm. the best people doing the makeup and the prosthetics and and the gore because there is a bit of gore in those zombies in in thriller and then with ghosts the the prosthetics and the costuming were mm. incredible the detail in those costumes of those dancers were just phenomenal. The set dressing of that ballroom and the house as you come into the house, phenomenal. But then he had those extra tools of special effects mm. uh, of the CG stuff. But you, even in ghosts, there is that practical effect. So like when that ghost comes after Michael sort of turns them to try and scare the mare and they shoot up into his face and then that one opens his mouth and then the other little one comes out of his mouth, that's like a practical effect. That's like a little robotic animatronic kind of puppet that, yeah the one that makes the face the one that pulls the out. funny little face it's hilarious yeah. and that's a practical effect so mm. there was still what can we do i think to keep it grounded and then there's the other side well 
well, we could do a skeleton dance in claymation. You know, that was that could have yeah. done that absolutely. <laughs> like in, they, to- in torture. Yeah, like in torture, <laughs> exactly. But they're like, well, we could do it, but it won't be as good. So let's now push the boundaries with the uh, the motion capture. So he but was the like, makeup what? of Michael as the mayor. There's a lot of people who, until the mayor dances, don't realize that that's Michael. Yeah. I mean, because yeah, it's practical, they could have done it. You know, maybe tried to do it CG. It would have been terrible at the time, but having yeah. that practical effect, thank God well, they did it's, that. It's with so those good. Masks. And like I was saying, like with Michael in the behind the scenes when he's dressed as the mayor and he's talking, but off, like you know, as if it's behind the scenes talking to the camera, saying, "Yeah, we're making this video. We're doing this. We're doing blah blah blah," and. He's doing the voice of the man, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, how clever Michael was with his vocals outside of singing. Like, he he could actually imitate people and do different voices and do all these things where you go, wow, is that actually him doing it? And he's doing the voice of the mayor. That wasn't some kind of dubbed over thing. It's him doing the voice, and when you see him in that makeup speaking to the camera it's just like wow it's kind of crazy it looks really real it doesn't it's not like one of these oh that was 1996 and look back how bad the makeup was like you know there's certain films that i love but like you know back to the future 2 where you're like yeah the makeup (laughs) doesn't hold up quite as well as you'd think but but that makeup to this day for the mayor as michael as the mayor it's still still holds up to me you just sort of look at it and you think wow (laughs) In all of the books that I read, when whenever they were talking about The Wiz, even going back to that, they always mention how good Michael was with the makeup process yeah. that he, because I don't know if either of you have ever been through an extensive makeup process like that, but it's it's very uncomfortable. It's hours of sitting there, especially when you have to do stuff like um, put contacts in your mm. eyes, because they're not thin like the kind that you would normally wear to see they're they're really uncomfortable and he never complained and Mm. most people thought he liked it and then once he would have it on he would spend as much time as he could in the mirror trying everything he could do to articulate a performance and the the makeup on the whiz was nothing compared to what he went through on thriller or ghost but the fact that he was so willing and eager and excited to do that really really helps on a feature film, usually the first night or two, it's fine. But after that, like mm. even actors who do it for a living, they, they're over it. And it's it can be really uncomfortable, especially to dance and that stuff. I, I don't I don't know how he did it. Amazing.
from the Thriller video and you're listening to the MJ cast. Were there, like with the advent of CGI and him pushing the boundaries, can you think of some examples from Ghosts? What would have been different if he was doing it at a different time? I think the biggest one that stood out at the time, having seen it in 96, was, you know, when he basically reached down and tore off his entire skin (laughs) to reveal the skeleton. At the time, that was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I don't think we'd seen anything like that to that level at that point. And I wonder, though, if if you saw Ghosts on Blu-ray now in high def, if it would hold up. Because I'm so used to seeing Ghosts off of YouTube or Vimeo or, or, you know, it's... And who knows what the original source was for that. It was probably... You know, it wasn't that high quality, but a lot of times that's all we like Flash Gordon. I don't know if you've ever seen Flash Gordon in high yeah, depth. Yeah. You can literally see all the wires. You can see, <laughs> yep. I mean, it, it doesn't help it. So I wonder yeah. if Ghost would hold up. The highest quality version I have came from the official release VHS, then transferred to digital. Um, and it's not, you know, it's still standard def VHS, but it's pretty good. And there's, you know, leaps and bounds would would be made if if it was, you know, high def. But I don't know. I kind of feel like it. And I'm also looking at other films of that era. Like, um, it's funny enough, there was there was uh, Frighteners, the Peter Jackson film with Michael J. Fox. Oh, my God. And, I love that movie so much. And it's got a similar feel because it was made yes. in the same era to the point where when we were in Sydney for the history tour in 96, and we heard on the grapevine that there might be showing ghosts in the cinemas for that week. We went to the cinemas and asked, are you showing, do you have anything of this of, of ghosts? And they kept saying, oh, is it this Frighteners thing? We've got that. Is that is that what you're talking about? <laughs> so it was right at the exact same time. That's all they could see. And then it wasn't until a few days later that we knew before they did clearly, but uh, that it came out. I've got a Blu-ray high-def version of that movie. And you look at some of the effects and yeah, you can kind of see, uh, it's, a, it's you can see that they're digital effects, but, but they generally hold up. I think it was the skeleton at that time. We, we hadn't really seen something like that whereby you, you know that it's not a practical thing. You're like, how do you get just bones to, 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 to move? And then not only that, to dance like Michael Jackson. And the whole thing with him in the, the ping pong ball suit was a revolution. Yeah, the motion thing. capture. Yeah, the mocap thing. That was like, wow, how did they do that? And that was, that was all kind of new at the time. 
I think that's one of the effects. And then when he kind of like smashes the skull head and it disintegrates back and he shakes his hair out, like those effects to me stand out as kind of like, you know, that was at the time that was kind of the groundbreaking stuff. A lot of the rest of it, like we said, was practical. When the mayor was dancing, that was pretty much him in a suit. Yeah. Um, Camera tricks for when the, the ghosts are dancing on the ceiling and the walls. If they're on the roof, their clothes would be hanging down. I was like, why didn't they do yeah. that? Like, ah. Oh. It was like a uh, giant rotating gimbal that they would sort of walk along and then it would rotate and then the camera would go with it. So it looks like they're on the walls. It's, it's, it's okay. <laughs> they first did that in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, actually, they first did yeah, it in, exactly. in a rain, but, but A Nightmare on Elm Street, when she gets dragged up onto the yeah, ceiling. Can you imagine, you know, most people know Michael's grand scheme, his his master plan was to transition into film eventually. And he had that King Tut project that was so dear to him that he was hopefully, you know, going to make that film someday. But can you imagine what that could have been? Because he would have done it right. He would have gotten the best possible people. And... And the one thing that he was really good at, that studio executives are not, is that <laughs> they need a director for some huge tentpole movie. They just look at who is hot right now, who, who just had a hit. or It doesn't necessarily mean they're right for that property. They're just, that person has got a lot of heat right now and they just had a success. Now, American Werewolf was obviously very big. But for what Thriller was to have Rick Baker and John Landis and, 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 and Painter as your, as your cinematographer, like he mm. knew exactly who he was going to. And then same thing with Ghosts. It's like to hire Stephen King to write the script with him and, and Stan Winston, who is an effects god. And I mean, he mm. just he knew the right people because there were other amazing writers. There were other incredible directors, but those were the right people for what he wanted. Yeah, he went big wherever he could. He wanted it to be the best. And so, I mean, he pretty much got the entire, you know, John Landis crew pretty much that worked on all the producers, editors, cinematographers, everything that did and affects people that did all of all of his, his films. So he just went, they're doing great Hollywood stuff. That's what I want. I want the best. He never sort of thought, well, who who's doing music videos and, you know, that's all they do. He's like, no, I want film directors. I want people who have done, you know, when you got John Singleton and, and you name it, everyone that he ever tried to work with uh, to get on board was like he wanted the best, you know. And Yeah, the fact that Scorsese directed bad is Yeah, so exactly. Crazy. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it's nuts, you know. And when he, Cop- when he did Coppola Moon, for Moonwalker, EO and... yeah, and and when he did Moonwalker, and he brought in, you know, the the guy, basically the effects people who did, you know, all of the Superman movies, et cetera, et cetera. He wanted everything to be as big as possible, and that was his thing. And I think so. Yeah, getting like you know, having Rick Baker do stuff, you know, for Thriller, and then and Stan Winston on Ghosts, and I believe Rick Baker also did makeup on on Ghosts. I believe he was in the credits for doing that. I don't know if people knew that. But um, it's so good, I'd believe it. Yeah. Uh, Hugh, while we were speaking, I emailed you uh, a couple pictures from Rick Baker's shop. Of he's got uh, a mannequin of Michael in the zombie makeup. Uh, his shop is unfortunately closed now because he's retired. But uh, I was I was there for something, and that was you know it's like a playground of just all the <laughs> wow. things. But I went. 
straight for like anything thriller that I could find in there. <laughs> and he's got like, it, it was just a giant room, like a museum. And like all the lights are out in the room except for, you know, the lights that are on the actual pieces. So it's, it's just done so well. And to actually see it up close and, you know, to be like an inch away from it, it's incredible. But I, I just emailed you those pictures. I'm looking at the shots now. The full body shot is creepy as because it looks so spot on. It, yeah, Amazing. it's like he's really there. You've had a few conversations with John Landis as well. Like, what does he sort of say when you've asked him about the the making of? You know, he's he, John's a, a very good friend, and uh, I pester him about any any sort of Michael Jackson stories I can get when, whenever it's appropriate. He just speaks of him so highly, and coming from somebody who is such a a legend in his own field. I mean, Landis in the 80s was like untouchable when it came to comedy especially. And the reverence that John speaks of Michael and almost like uh like like Michael was like a a son in a way. Like he that seems to be the way a lot of people speak of him like he was still just a, a child despite all of his success and his money and all the other things he had and he clearly had a very smart business oriented mind like he made really good decisions at times and then i think he got so big that other people were now hired to to do that stuff and that's where it all started to fall apart but in the beginning especially he was just a, a kid and and john is a you know he's a gruff guy and he has no filter whatsoever whatever he has to say he will say it if which has caused some trouble in recent years but yes. i think you know he's just speaking his mind and not filtering what he says which yeah. is probably not a bad thing sometimes but when it comes to michael he just you can just see it in his eye like almost like a sadness too that like michael's death was almost like uh like it was a very personal thing to him, but he, when I can get him to talk about those things, he just, he just kind of lights up in a way because he's, you know, he's, he's been put through the ringer for sure. And there's, there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. Uh, and the fact that still to this day, John gets blamed for the accident on Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, yeah. And, Anybody who works in the industry should know a little bit better. But, you know, the director gets gets blamed for everything or they get praised for everything. If it's a great movie, it's not all of these artists together who did it. It's the director's film. It's the, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way things are. But because technically you are the top of the, the ladder on that set, you're the one who gets blamed. And when that accident happened, you know, it was an accident. And But they blame him for every little thing. Like, well, why were those kids still on set that late at night? We've all seen movies with children outside at night. That's not illegal to do. Uh, you have to do it the right way. They can only be there for so many hours and blah, blah, blah. But that was a studio movie. There was a whole staff of ADs and producers and there's rules and there's like 
it's not like he said fuck all of that and and everyone stayed and kept working like or even asking the helicopter to go lower it's the pilot and the stunt guys like it's their job to say this is all we can do again yeah. i wasn't there but it's hard because you know he's been on the podcast as well and then we get shit like why do you talk to that guy why are you friends with him why are you and if they only knew him like i know he's he's got a big mouth and a personality that can sometimes be <laughs> off-putting but he is one of the kindest most generous nicest uh, he's just I, I i love him i adore him adam you mentioned something earlier about the tone of the film and how important that is and there is such a big difference between the tone of thriller and ghosts and watching it yesterday, you know, I can see sort of it is like a, a mask or a Disney-esque humour kind of thing in Ghosts. Does that purely come from the stories, the music, the filmmaking techniques? I know that it was intentional to have different tones, but talk to us a little bit about the difference in the tone and how that came to be, how, how it's created and how important that is for the films. With anything, tone is the most important thing because the, the tone is what's going to dictate if the audience is going to like it or not. The, the tone is basically the attitude of a piece. Within the horror genre, in the mid-2000s, and it was really a reaction to the way the world had changed after 9-11, but a lot of horror became very mean-spirited. It was a lot of torture. It was a lot of hopelessness. It wasn't fun. You were you were watching people get strapped down and you know slowly taken apart while they scream for their lives in pain. That is not fun. I like. I think there's room for everything, and it should all exist. But that's not my thing. Most of my stuff, except for Frozen, which is a thriller, is most of my stuff is highly comedic. Like I don't believe in punishing an audience. Like I want them to be feel good and be happy when they leave. And when you look at, at ghosts, especially, it feels like you're on a Disney ride. It's tone is the difference between the haunted mansion at Disneyland or when you go to Halloween horror nights at universal, mm. you know, at night when it's for adults. <laughs> um, yeah. Ghosts is the haunted mansion. It's you're smiling. It's, it's fun. Even at the parts that are supposed to be, you know, quote scary, there's a safety, around it and there's a good naturedness to it. It's, you know, instead of spooky or disturbing. Thriller mm. is more serious than Ghosts, but it's still a B movie. It's still, you don't, I think that there are moments in Thriller where you do feel like Ola is in danger, but at no point do you think he's gonna tear her head off and like eat her heart out or something, you know? But I think the well, they, they actually don't show that in Thriller. You sort of hear something like that when they're in the cinema watching, but they cut yeah. away and that's when they're showing their faces. Very uh, different. In every John Landis movie, there somebody either says or it's written yeah. down, see you next see Wednesday. See you next Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. That moment yeah. that you just talked about, that's, that's where you can hear it said. Uh, I think the best moment of Thriller is when he first looks up at her and he says, stay away. Like, that is so awesome. <laughs> and it's, just, it's a simple thing like that. But the fact that, well, if you really want to analyze this, he was about to tell, like, he asked her to be his girl and then immediately says, something I got to tell you, I'm not like other guys. I want to know, where was he going with this? 
And why was he outside on a full moon? <laughs> like he should have thought about that a little bit more. But but yeah, tone is is so important, and it every single artist working on a piece is responsible for the tone because even the editing could change all of it. It could change the intention. It can change the performance that somebody is giving. The takes that they that an editor picks, especially for cutaways reaction shots from people, you can completely yeah. change a character's motivation that way. I'm sure, Paul, that's yep. something you deal with constantly. Yep. That's what we do. I mean, people often think our oh, editing is like some kind of Ikea thing where they make the film and then you just put it together piece by piece as it was intended. But you can pretty much change the shape of anything and you can save things that aren't working. You can redo everything. You can enhance actors' performances. You can enhance the dance. You can enhance... I mean, I can't tell you how many movies I've seen where I just look at it and I think, well, there's a good movie in there, but I don't think they made the movie well enough in the editing process, which as you pointed out earlier, Adam, editing is really literally where you are making the movie. You are the yeah. one, like every, it's like, we always say it's like, it's like cooking or shopping. It's like everything you do to prepare for the film and go out and shoot and all of that stuff is like you're shopping for the ingredients. You are collecting everything you need to make something, like you're cooking something. You're going to get everything you can collect it all together but the making of it is actually the bit where you put it all together and actually create it and well, look in terms at the time of, you know you're on set yeah. for a matter of days you're in editing for months exactly and that makes or breaks whether it's going to be successful or not and you know you can completely make something brilliant if you have the right editor and you can also completely destroy something if you don't and what's so heartbreaking about it is that even the director sometimes will not realize that it could be better because there's nothing to compare it to. Do you know what I mean? Like you're just thinking, yeah. well, maybe this is as good as it gets. But a good editor, I always say, is a magician. It's basically someone who can make something out of nothing and create stuff that's not there and not just sort of go, oh, yeah, it's, this is as good as it gets. They didn't shoot this. They didn't do it. The actor never did it. Your job is to go beyond what's there and to control it and shape it and create it. And or a good editor... To see yeah. what's there that they exactly. didn't even know that they got. No was there. And it's how many times people have come to me and said, well, hang on, where, did, where was that shot? Or did we even shoot that? And I'm like, no, you didn't. I've created, and I show them behind the scenes of the little mad magician's trickery that we created. I stole that from here and I did this and that's actually reversed and blah, blah, blah. It's, and they're just like... Wow, I, we were going to reshoot that. I edit my own stuff when it's a short film or, uh, you know, uh, something like Scary Sleepover, which is, you know, more like an interview talk show. But if it's a feature, I have to have a, yeah. a great editor and somebody who's also willing to argue with me till the, exactly. till the death. Because filmmaking is a collaborative It shouldn't be called editing. I think if it was called constructing. If if, uh -huh. if if it said like film constructor, uh, you know, Paul Black, <laughs> then it would make more sense. But when people hear editing, I think that for the average you know person who doesn't know anything about filmmaking, they think that the editor is the one who kind of went in and maybe censored things or you know. Uh, <laughs> well, or, it's been described quite often as editing is just taking out the bad parts, right? And I'm like, yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> they literally just, they, like you said, like a puzzle, they just took the footage and they, they placed it together how it's supposed to go. But no, it, it's they, an editor on a 
film should be called The Constructor. I think. It's, it's so much more creative than technical is the thing that a lot of people don't sort of realize. It's all about the choices you make. It's all choices. So for those who aren't really familiar, you know, sure, you're going to edit this Michael Jackson film together. He's got this performance. This is great. For every moment that happens, every dance move every moment you've got a handful or more choices of well hang on do we use this angle for it or do we use that angle for that moment because you have that same moment in multiple angles different shots wider closer different angles but also multiple times for each one so if we do choose say the closer shot that's best for the emotion or or the character how many takes have we got and which one is better? Oh, that one was a bit weaker or even coming back to tone. This one was a little too too serious, too dark. This yeah. one's got playfulness. That's what I was, I was just going to say, bring it back to tone. It's not about which is the best shot that we have for, exactly. you know, for this moment. It's about how the whole piece is feeling and how exactly. it's making you feel. And that's how you make those decisions. And that's absolutely what it's all about is we everything we're doing – is so that the audience can feel whatever that emotion is. Emotion is king, we say, you know. Is it about we want them to be laughing or crying or scared or dazzled or excited? That That's where all our choices are coming from. It's not always about, well, hang on, this shot's actually a little better framed or it's slightly more in focus. If the magic is in the shot that's not technically perfect, you always choose the creativity and the emotion and for the story over what is technically superior or it doesn't match a lot of people think editing is just you know does it match from continuity shot to shot a good editor will always cheat that and find a way to make things that don't match seamless as best they can but in in essence it's really about choosing for the right reasons for what's going to get you into the story and when you cheat continuity like that it's not. It's usually not until people have watched it hundreds of times that they start to go, hang on a minute, and you see it all over the internet. Oh, look at all the mistakes in Star Wars yeah. or in whatever. <laughs> look, there's a guy in the background. And it's like, well, how many times did it take for you to notice that? And it's not really a mistake. No. They just chose this. Uh, they said, hole. we're not going to – we won't they sacrifice like- the best performance to choose one that's – you know, more in focus or without that thing in the background. Fortunately, today you can digitally remove all of that stuff. But anyway, there's a little think, little, little bit of a spiel on editing for you. A big testament, though, going going back to tone, is that Michael chose to do horror genre pieces for both of these. Yet, even if you hate horror movies and would never watch one, you can watch these and enjoy them. Makes them and, accessible, yeah. Yes. And yeah, accessibility is, is everything. Just, you know, his music in general. Like I, like I keep saying, like I, I am a metalhead through and through, but I love every Michael Jackson song ever. But there was something about, he knew how to reach absolutely everybody. And it was never forced or manipulative. He didn't add guitars to beat it because he was strategically trying to sell records to people like me. It fit this. It fit mm. the piece. It fit what he was trying to say, and he was so versatile. And I mean, the classical music that he would listen to, the books that he would read, thousands and thousands of books, and just he was fascinated by all art, and he found ways to incorporate it into everything. The breakdown in the middle of morphine is such a great mm. example of that. It's it, the contrast of it. And how deadly serious he gets for a second, which is not what we were used to in a Michael Jackson song. 
and mm-hmm. to just be saying it straight up about Demerol and and you know of course now you hear it and it just gives you chills yeah, mm. yeah. i mean there's so um, much depth to all his work and i think that's pretty much what came out in those later years through history and beyond adam can i ask you know horror is your wheelhouse so to speak tone makes up you know a big part of how you are meant to feel in a horror film even if it's a funny thing like what we're talking about with uh, ghosts what are some of the tricks of the trade that you can tell us about from a technical level when making horror genre films that you identify in thriller and ghosts well a great example is just you know they're, they're things that sound so simple but they matter for instance in ghosts when when the group first walks into the house, there's a shot from upstairs. And now you would think it would almost be enough just to be having that high angle and shooting down at your principal characters because you're making them small. You're showing that they're not in charge here. You're showing that they could potentially be in danger. By just by shooting down at them, it gives you that feeling. But to take it one step further is as the camera dollies to the left, it's also shooting through the railings of the stairs. And now, not only are you making your characters seem small and potentially in danger, but like they're being watched by something else. It, it becomes like a point of view shot at that point. And now you feel like they're not alone. And it's, it's so simple. Or dutching the camera just a little bit, which just means if your camera is level and you know shooting straight on, you just kind of make it a little bit crooked. If you make it really crooked, that's completely noticeable. But if you just do it a little bit, it's just Mm. off-centered enough to make the audience feel uncomfortable. So little things like that really go a long way. Well, I want to ask then, I think you mentioned one of the best shots for you, Adam, is, you know, stay away in Thriller in the car. But I was going to ask each of you, I guess, what are the moments from each film and I'll do mine first, that really sort of hit that horror mark or just uh, your favourite shot. So for me, you know, in Thriller, the scene that scares me the most is the scene of when Ola has raced into the house and the zombies are breaking into the house through the floor, the windows and the, the door and the walls. Like, that is really scary. It's a perfect scene because it captures her terror and it manages to scare me as well. And then in (laughs) Ghosts, the scene that for me is actually a little bit scary, like for me it's really well constructed, is the scene where I think it's the, um, the super skeleton sort of turns the ghouls into actual scary versions of the ghouls and they've been, you know, tapping and everything on the floor that percussive thing, it's really unsettling. Mm. But then when he sort of orders them like a pack of animals to surround the mare, like that pack of animals, the sounds and them like, you know, being like wild beasts that you don't know, are they actually going to tear this guy apart or what? That, that's like a really scary thing for me to see that. Like, so Paul, what's like, have you got any scenes like that from each mm. of the films? 
Well, I mean, yeah, I I watch a lot of horror, so Michael's stuff is always like, yeah, pretty tame. So I wouldn't say it actually comes close to being scary, scary. It's more like we said the tone is a sort of fun, playful, or interesting scary. But I guess maybe thinking back to when I first saw these when I was younger, particularly Thriller, I was younger. And uh, yeah, I remember the first time I ever saw it was like, a, it literally would have been around 1983 uh, and a kid down the road sort of had the VHS making of. So it would have been right around that time. And yeah, I, I don't remember much. I just remember it being scary because I was pretty young. But looking at it now with Thriller, I mean, I don't, I don't know, the moment for me that I always love in that sort of vein is, is, is you know, the sort of like... The part where he basically turns into a zombie and then starts dancing as a zombie, like it's just that that sort of tracking, sort of reverse tracking shot, just you know, with Ola and then him, and then he's just a zombie and he's dancing. There's just something about that that's, I guess it's it's it's. Not, I wouldn't say it's scary, but it's kind of just like it's perfect in the tone of what they're doing, and it's like wow. But I do remember as a kid when he turned into a zombie, that was pretty scary. Probably in a weird way, even more so than when he turned into the werewolf for me, because I guess that was a bit more fanciful. But this was like kind of real, like he was actually you could see the human being and he's all kind of scary with the eyes and the zombie makeup. So I'd say in Thriller, that's probably the moment that always gets me. And in Ghosts, I think I'd probably come back to that same moment I talked about earlier where he smashes himself into the ground. Like to me, that's just kind of chilling and powerful and there's just so much going on with that and then as the years have passed as i said looking at it now there's ho- there's a whole lot more depth to what that feels like and the meaning behind it and what it means um since his passing and what's happened with his whole life and career um so those are probably the two for me i think well for thriller i already talked about the the stay away moment but in ghosts it's another moment just like that and it's so simple and it's a character thing but it's just when michael says hello when he (laughs) is intimidating them because there's something about the delivery of that that makes the maestro which is his character's name seem unhinged and unpredictable Mm. and unsafe and it goes from silly and i'm innocent i didn't do anything wrong to i could if I wanted to, you know, it's, it's so small and simple, but it gives you such respect for that character mm. where you don't want to mess with him. It's interesting that you just say that it brings up something that I haven't really thought about. I remember now back, back when that first came out, we were all so excited about those moments when he's like, hello, game time. There was something yeah. about that, that we're like, wow, Michael's really stepping up to the plate and fighting back and becoming like kind of more aggressive we weren't really used to seeing that the high voice and the very soft spoken michael a lot of people actually now i remember as well a lot of people said that they just weren't used to hearing michael speak so much as even in that film And there's not a lot of dialogue but people weren't used to his voice and remembered his voice a lot more along the lines of what you're saying back in the day. But now his voice had deepened a bit and he was being a bit more authoritative and, you know, he's being more aggressive. And we'd we'd seen him come out, you know, a year before or so with with Scream. And that was like, oh, wow, he's being all sort of the the pissed off, aggressive, fighting back at everything. And but that was in a song. This was like him in an acting performance. Even thinking back to like throwbacks i'm thinking back to bad like you know when wesley snipes was kind of getting on his back and michael's getting all aggressive 
But I guess even then, people were sort of like giving him a bit of crap for that, saying, oh, look at Michael trying to be tough because he had a higher voice then and it was kind of Michael's attempt at being street. And we all thought it was pretty cool, but I know, you know, it didn't seem as tough where in Ghosts, like he's got the lower voice and he seems much more, and a lot of people were taken aback by that. They're like, whoa, look at Michael. He's like, hello. <laughs> he seemed tougher in Ghosts than he did in Bad. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he had like more control over yeah, yes. these people that are in his house, and you can, mm-hmm. he was the one in charge always. Yes, and and like I said, at the time when it came out, at the time it was this kind of like it was a weird thing of like, wow, look, we didn't expect Michael to be kind of, I wouldn't say making fun of himself, but like I said, he's kind of like in a way he's attacking himself through the story and what's going on but literally as two characters and then he's standing up to himself and he's being a great it was just like whoa it was like this is cool you go mike this is awesome (laughs) (laughs) love it love it i'm gonna throw you tonight Ooh, babe, I'm gonna throw you tonight. Oh, darling, I'm gonna throw you tonight. Ooh, babe, I'm gonna throw you tonight. Ooh, babe. Ooh. Ah, babe, I'm gonna throw you tonight. Ooh, man, I'm gonna throw you tonight. Gonna do it tonight. It's close to midnight. And something evil's lurking in the dark. Under the moonlight, you see a sight that almost stops your heart. You try to scream, but terror takes the sound before you make it. You start to freeze. And so it looks you right between the eyes You're paralyzed
Michael Jackson. This is Vincent Price inviting you to The Thriller. The foulest stench is in the air. The 
sunk of forty thousand years, and grisly goons from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. Though you fight to stay alive, your body starts to shiver. For no mere mortal can resist the evil of the thriller. Hi, this is Terrell Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Could Thriller have been made and have the same impact now in 2019? I think so. I, I, I really do. In fact, it could be made the exact same way. It would be considered you know, a nostalgia piece, and it would be all about how retro it is. But it is perfect, because uh, you watch it, I, again, I, knowing we were going to have this conversation, I watched it again this morning. And it's still wonderful. Everything about it is just yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, but wait, do you mean like, could it be made today as in could they recreate it with today's technology and just everything? Or do you mean as in if it never existed and it never happened, but they yeah. came out now? Is that what you mean? Or? Yeah. If it, had, if it was not made in the 80s. And this was, yeah. It's such a hard question to answer because if it wasn't made in the 80s, like nothing that's happened in the last 20, 30 years would have happened. You know what I mean? In a way, I'm generalizing, but it's like, because I'm looking at the way things are now. Imagine, like, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie yesterday, the Beatles film, where they're trying to say, well, imagine no one had ever heard the Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how can that be possible? And you're trying to imagine a world where they have not been heard and what was amazing about that movie is when they try and say you know this song and they'll play a bit of the song or they'll perform it it enabled the audience to kind of hear it as if because of the scene the way they'd set up what was happening to sort of go wow and it was like hearing it for the first time again these songs that you've heard so many times but in a way you were just kind of hearing it through different ears. It's like, like I'm sure, Adam, you know, you can edit a film and watch your film and be working on it, but when you first put an audience in front of it to test it out or whatever, you see it through different eyes. You're seeing it a bit more fresh because you can feel the audience seeing it and you're kind of imagining how it looks to them for the first time, which is always an interesting and different sort of thing to just being absorbed in your own world working on something. But I'm trying to imagine... I don't know, a world where Thriller never got made at that time, what would be the state of 
the music industry and and music film and video now i'm not sure i guess technically they're pretty good now at recreating something like that so if they were trying to literally do a recreation they could have a good go but i guess without michael i don't know <laughs> full flat yeah. i think yes yeah. i yeah. think i think you know, people have probably been trying for the last thirty years, musicians and artists, to do something like, to do something like Thriller. You know, and Arwen agrees. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> I guess wrapping up, the only other question that I think I can ask is, what would you do, each of you, for a a short film for Threatened? Because really, like, that is such an incredible track. The the story, the lyrics, the visuals that everyone gets will be different. Mm. Paul, I'm going to hand to you first. Well, I think, well, there's two things come to mind. The first thing is, this is another in a series of songs that Michael has done with a sort of horror slash Halloween type theme. So how do you do a video for that without again, just making it feel like another thriller, another ghost, etc. It's like, well, how do you do something that he hasn't already done? But then the second thing that come to mind was, you know, the whole Twilight Zone stuff. So I think if there was a really clever, I mean, are we talking as if uh, to make a film without Michael in it, or are you saying if Michael was here or back in the day when he was going to make it, like yeah, like thinking, let's do it if there if you were if Michael in, was here, yeah, in my a new song exactly let's do my it. in my fantasy world where everything's great and we'd be working on this film with Michael, I reckon maybe digging out similar to what they did with some of the This Is It stuff, digging out uh, as much Twilight Zone stuff as they could, like actual original episodes and stuff, and finding a way to incorporate Michael in and around all of that Twilight Zone. Man, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to have that's him go different. through Twilight Zone episodes, basically, and, you know, like with how they did that with Forrest Gump, and you yeah. know, we've seen it done a bunch, but for that song, it would be so perfect. To literally have him be the Rod Serling, like film a new scripted intro, just yeah. like Rod Serling with Michael, but then he goes through all of these scenarios. I've got another idea collaborating here. And how cool would it be is if the concept of the Twilight episode, uh, Twilight Zone episode that Michael's kind of trapped in is part of the story of the video. He somehow gets sort of sent back in through time. If there was a way to pop him up in the thriller video, uh, okay, or Derek, the ghost I was video, say, if okay, because <laughs> as it progresses, if he goes so deep that he's now in the making of to to have a moment where he's on the set of exactly. Thriller again, yeah. like How but cool something. Would that be? Not don't make a huge meal out of it, but just exactly. have it happen. Just oh. a moment, yeah, where it's like Michael's story of the Twilight Zone is not just he's going through all these episodes, but maybe he ends up in his own episode of the Twilight Zone where somehow he finds himself and going through his own history and time, and he's trapped. And and yeah, little kind of clever. Oh, look at that! Out. He came through. Oh, he's on. Th you know, little glimpse moments of him just going through the thriller video and 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 being around himself dancing kind of like what they did in Back to the Future 2 where he's Michael J Fox is up on stage but the other Michael J Fox is kind of working in and around yeah. something like that would be amazing and you could go through as many Michael videos or maybe just the kind of horror type scary type oh. type ones how cool would that be he could end up in a graveyard 
and you don't realize until the camera pulls back far enough that it's the graveyard where they're filming thriller and you see the cranes and you see the guy you know crawling out and you know but if he if that's how it ends and he can't get out like he went so deep that now he's he's trapped in the twilight zone awesome. that would just be so great i'm, I'm part of me was just like we Let's should crowdfund this. We should make it, but, <laughs> but we yeah. kind of need Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure we're getting closer and closer to being able to recreate digitally, not you know the lousy hologram efforts, but I'm sure we're getting closer and closer to actually getting to the point where you can do a convincing recreation of someone who's no longer with us or at an age that they're no longer at. They're getting, they're getting much better at it. So it's yeah. terrifying that's because that, that's sort of happening now, the, the deep fake stuff, because, yeah. of course, what we said before about technology, what are the first things people do when they get these amazing opportunities in technology, like the internet, you know, with insulting people and tearing people down in porn, with the deep fake stuff, the first stuff that's going to happen is going to be terrible. It's going to be like framing people for things. Oh, God. Yeah. So. Well, let's hope. Let's <laughs> Thanks for ending on a bummer cue. Oh, well, okay, I'll do my threatened video. I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back. Mine's quite different to you guys, which sounds amazing. And it's funny how you've just both videos. made the same film. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> I'm sure I've told this on the show earlier in seasons one or two or something, but for my threatened film, I would have a very sort of Tim Burton beautiful pastel perfect neighborhood with like a family that's moved in and then somehow it gets all twisted instead of being this you know beetle juicy sort of neighborhood that's all perfect that they're they're threatened but it's like michael from different eras they put his face on all the neighborhood people so like when they're like someone's mowing the lawn turns around and it'll be michael's face from a certain video, but then, you know, there'll be like a grandma walking up the street, walking a little Arwen, a little Yorkie, and it'll be like Michael under the wig. And, you know, Michael's the threatening one to this, this family that appears so perfect and everything, but they're not. And it would be uh, very unsettling and very creepy. And I've gone a very different way. I'm going to hmm. send you a link to a commercial. I don't know what country it was from, but Joel David Moore, who is the, he was the star in Hatchet. One, uh, I did a movie with him called Spiral. He's been in a ton of my stuff. It was a commercial. I don't even know what the product was for because it was in a different language, but it was just that where his face was on everybody in every scenario that they did. And it is so creepy. Yeah. Um, I'm going to send it to you, but that is an awesome idea. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this has been a blast. Um, Adam, I know Halloween is your favorite season, so yes. I hope this has helped get you in the spirit. It so has. I love Halloween, not just for the horror movies and dressing up, but spiritually the idea of remembering those that we've lost and that this is the time of year when the spiritual world is closest to ours. Uh, I have a Halloween tree. I do presents. I do a Halloween I, tree, yes. Uh, but I have a Halloween dinner and uh, what we do is there's a place set in between 
everybody there's an empty play set oh, and wow. each guest brings a framed photograph of whoever they're going to be remembering for this dinner it's sad because when we were younger it was always pets and now as we get older it's more and more people but mm. before we eat everybody goes around the table and tells a quick funny story or, or just happy memory it's not sad about whoever it is just so everybody else at the table can get to know something about that person and then we have these little skeleton bells that we ring to you know summon them to eat with us or whatever but it's all very wow. loving and it's very happy and it's not morbid and and then you on halloween night there's children everywhere who are being rewarded for their creativity with their costumes by being given candy and you know in the beginning that was all about getting to know your neighbors it used to be that that trick-or-treaters were invited inside and there were games and there was you know but the candy companies created that fake rumor that there are razor blades and all this stuff and you can't trust anything that isn't professionally wrapped meaning you have to buy their product. But in the history of time, it's like a handful of people that were ever injured from Halloween candy, and every time it was their own family members that did it to them. Oh, so, whoa. Yeah, it's, it's such a wonderful holiday. Here in America, it's just as big as Christmas at this point. Mm. It's, it's huge. It's huge. So, yeah, I was over there uh, last year for Halloween. It was awesome. It was always my favorite time over there as well, and all the all the stuff that they do with all the mazes and all the kind of cool stuff that happens and the the decorations and everything. It's like to another level. Yeah, awesome time to be to be over there. Love it. Well, I'll be actually uh, Hong Kong Disneyland for uh, two years in a row. Halloween last year and this year for the season as well for Halloween and. They do it pretty good. They they have that sort of slightly scary element. They've got a stage show this year in one of the theatres with all the villains, so I'm actually really excited to see that for the first time. They've got a walkthrough attraction for, like, um, Halloween Town, Nightmare Before Christmas, which was a little bit disappointing. It wasn't quite what I expected. But that was had some unsettling sort of actors in the queue they were like grave digger zombies and they were really creepy and oh i'll never forget that guy last year he was so creepy so i'll be doing a little bit of cool disney halloween celebration in hong kong this year looking forward to that cool i'll be in the middle of editing a movie so i probably can't do <laughs> halloween as big as i would like to i usually have a big festival if i'm like at home in sydney I'll, I'll have a big festival and i'll watch all sorts of stuff but i think this year i'm going to be right in the thick of editing so we'll see how we go hopefully we can squeeze a few things in and uh yeah rock out to the season yes and it's truly for me and i think that mj fam should really embrace it to me, this is like Michael's season. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, well, this absolutely. Is, this is, yeah, he just loved that kind of stuff. And also, let's not forget that he loved, you know, the whole practical jokes and playing pranks and yeah. having fun. And he was never really much into Christmas growing up, obviously. So this was like his time where you can do all of that. You can combine everything from playing jokes, practical jokes, scaring people, creating all this kind of stuff that's kind of cool and fun and exciting. And then all the, all the work that he's done of that theme. Yeah, it's totally his thing. So I think we should all really celebrate Michael at this time. This is like his holiday folks. You know, we've got Michael Jackson day in August. This is his holiday though. 
let's like keep it fun, keep it scary, and yeah, enjoy Thriller Night. Gentlemen, this has been super fun. Jamin, have fun editing this because there was a lot of discussion about so many things and a few technical hiccups, which no one's going to notice because Jamin's an incredible audio editor. But um, Paul Black, thank you for joining us again on the MJ Cast. Like, I love catching up with you when I'm over at you, you know, visiting Sydney and you and your wife and your beautiful little Abby cat. So, <laughs> but it's always great to have you on the show and get the free freestyle time of just like get get our Michael on. So thank just, you again. No worries. Catching up just the way we always did and yeah. everyone else can join in and listen to the discussion and chime in like I do when you sort of like listen to the <laughs> show and you're like, oh, and I, oh, that's it. I'm not on the show. <laughs> and then when you are on the show, it's the opposite. You're listening to the show as you're on it thinking, hang on a minute, I'm on the show. I better say something. And I forgot I was too busy engrossed with what you guys were saying. I forgot I was actually on the show. Paul Black, you're not really on social media, so I guess there's no point in you asking you for <laughs> off any the grid. social media links. You're off the grid, which is probably a good thing. Um, you can reach me through the MJ cast. There you go. <laughs> Done. We'll pass it along. And you've already said you're going to be busy working soon, so all the best with that film project and for everything that will come in the future. And I think you and Adamax should keep in touch because yeah, who knows what the future absolutely. holds because you're both amazing guys. Adam, thank you. I've been so looking forward to having you on the show. I'm jealous that you got to meet Elise at in the studio with MJ in Los Angeles because I'm I haven't met you yet. I know you're going to see her at the uh, Square One premiere, so please um, send her a hug from me and thanks for everything that she does for us because Elise is wonderful and amazing. But thank you for your time this evening because you've been great and it's been awesome talking with you, not just able to sort of listen to you on your show and the movie crypt podcast. So thank you so much for joining us and for the amazing email that you sent us earlier this year that sort of got us into contact. Really appreciate it. Well, I really, really appreciate all that you guys do. And I think you just do such a great job the the guests that you that you choose uh, people who were behind the behind the scenes but who who did know Michael it's it's so incredible to hear their perspective on things and just you know on behalf of all the fans who listen to what you guys do uh, please don't ever stop because it's it's incredible and I I know exactly how hard it is to keep up with and it's not easy so. Uh, kudos to you guys for doing what you do yeah my podcast is called the movie crypt it's available everywhere it's not a horror movie review podcast uh i think i think you would enjoy it um so much more folks give it a go my social media twitter and instagram are at adam underscore effin underscore green and uh, my website is aeriescope.com, A-R-I-E-S-C-O-P-E.com. There's hundreds of short films, uh, web series like Scary Sleepover, uh, that episode with Slash that you mentioned. We do have a YouTube channel as well, but everything looks and sounds better on aeriescope.com. Our 21st annual Halloween short is called Pumpkin Dick, and it is... <laughs> By the time this airs, it is now playing, um, but it's it's really fun. I think it's like six minutes, seven minutes. 
So uh, if you need something fun to do for Halloween, uh, I, I recommend our Halloween shorts. And if you live in Australia, the fourth hatchet, Victor Crowley, is coming out uh, just in time for Halloween. Sweet. And looks really scary and gross. So It's funny, I promise you. It's funny, really funny, scary, gross, but lots of gross. Yes. <laughs> you can just close your eyes, Q, during the bits you don't like. Oh, um, I'm sorry. There's, no. there's one more thing. If yeah. You, if it's okay. Every year with the movie crypt, we do a thing called Yorkie-thon. Yes, uh, I've the, got this in the notes. I was going to ask you about it. When oh, is good. it this year? Yeah, it's, it's December 6th through 8th. It'll be uh, on aeriescope.com is where you'll be able to find the link. Uh, or if you follow me on social media, you won't be able to miss it. But every year, Joe, Arwen, and myself, we stay on the air live for 48 hours straight to raise money for Save a Yorkie Rescue. They're a very small organization that helps homeless and horrifically abused dogs. Uh, this year, at some point during the marathon, we will pass the $100,000 mark for oh, money wow. to raise. And it's so it's not just us talking for 48 hours. It's a variety show. So there's live comedy, live music, script readings. We got to do a reading of the original draft of Chris Columbus's Gremlins and the Goonies, yeah. where they were so different from the movies that we had, that we all know. There's also live commentaries to classic films. So many, just so many celebrities coming by around the clock. We work on this year round it's the most important thing that we do and the fact that every year together we get to save so many dogs uh the i'm trying not to cry right now the the the, the rescue uh, always sends us a book afterwards with the the photos and the story of each dog that we help save and and that's what's so great about doing this for a smaller uh charity because it's not so big that it's just, you know, more money coming in. We get to see see the dogs that we saved. And for anybody thinking Yorkies, like, why do Yorkies need to be saved? Every every breed needs help. And the reason why we do it is because Arwen is a Yorkie and Arwen really saved my life. And so by doing this, we're not just saving the dogs, we're also saving the people that are gonna adopt these dogs and have their lives changed for the better. So if you get a chance, uh, December 6th through 8th, for 48 hours straight, we will be staying awake so they don't get put to sleep. Cool. So beautiful. What's the name of the um, the, the actual whole show again for the Yorkie uh, site? We call it Yorkie-thon. But it's Yorkie-thon. Just, it's, cool. It's, yeah, the, the Movie Crypt podcast. The thing, though, is you can't do a live broadcast through Spotify, iTunes, like all the places yeah. that you normally listen. So we do it usually through a, a YouTube uh, live thing, but the link will be right on the front page of aeriscope.com. Usually a lot of other websites will put us on their front page for the weekend as well. But again, if you follow me on social media, uh, you will be seeing it constantly that weekend. But it's a really good time. And I know a lot of people actually do stay awake with us for the whole 48 hours. It's uh, people always ask, well, how, how do you do that? But it's literally just adrenaline and joy because every time you get really tired, then you see more donations coming in and you look at that book with all those faces and it's, it's really amazing. So that that's coming up very soon. 
Excellent. And people, Arwen does not stay awake for 48 hours. Arwen no. just comes and drops in and visits <laughs> and does dog life stuff in like, the middle. Wake up, wake up. Little, yeah, little Arwen is not awake for 48 hours. No, she goes home at night. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, is, is like, I know you have a cat as well. Like, yeah. do Yorkies sort of sleep a lot like cats? She, you know, not as much. My cat's name is Tyler uh, after Steven Tyler. Uh, and yeah, he, he sleeps constantly, constantly, but no, she's, uh, you know, she sleeps probably half as much as the cat, but she's just got such a huge personality. And, uh, if you watch scary sleepover, uh, you'll see her in every episode licking everybody's heads. The fact that she climbs into Slash's guitar case. I was going to bring that up. (laughs) I love that moment so much. I was like, hang on a minute. How's this going to go down to a slash? And I was like, hang on, can I crawl in here and make this into a little bed? Because this looks pretty comfy. That was the best moment. They're (laughs) very good friends. I think it's his hair. uh, (laughs) So much, but, um, and he's, he's just such a sweet guy. So animals naturally love him. But yeah, it's whenever I see that moment happen, I'm like, if this dog only knew, like, how yeah. lucky she is. Yes. <laughs> how many fans of Slash would want to sleep curled up in that guitar case <laughs> as like a coffin or something? <laughs> that was such a funny moment. Has Slash like t- spoken about you know working with Michael much? Um, you know, we've never we've never talked about that, which is odd because normally anybody who knew Michael, that's like, like one of the first things I go for, but that's actually, it's never come up and I'm going to make sure that the next time I speak to him, I, I ask him, I know when he did the movie crypt, I did bring it up, but I, it was like in a list of all the incredible people he's worked with. So he didn't speak too extensively just about that, but I definitely need, need to get him to, to tell me some, some stories. Cause he was there on the stage when Michael fell. Mm, uh, yeah. So, like, he's got to have stories about that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to get into that. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, gentlemen, thank you so much. Happy Thriller Night, Halloween to you both and to all the listeners out there. And thank you, Jamin, for editing this together into an incredible show for us all to enjoy and celebrate Michael with on his holiday. So, gentlemen, thank you again, and Michael on. going to say because of you yes. i know now now i call him michael instead of michael <laughs> i listen to this podcast so much i'm always like michael michael michael, michael. <laughs> michael. it's michael <laughs> oh my god that's so oh. funny in the in the there's a thing on youtube of the bad tour in brisbane <laughs> yes. australia and all you can hear at the front because 
Back in 1987, Australia, particularly in Brisbane, they had thicker accents, believe it or not. Yeah. So all you can hear is all these girls yelling out, Michael, Michael, we love you, Michael, Michael. <laughs> it sounds so different to every other concert video you ever hear. It's hilarious. Oh, funny. Um, well, aren't you going to ask us how Michael should be remembered? Oh, I can. Paul, you've probably done this. I don't know. But... I have I don't know. I'll do it. I'll do it. Well, yeah. don't, don't do it on my behalf. I just, I, I you usually want the experience. Like <laughs> no, like, I want, I want to give Adam the full experience. I want to give, this is his first time. I want to, I want to make sure he gets his money's worth. So uh, do you want me to do Paul first, Adam? Yes. All right. Actually, probably not. Cause he's going to say whatever I'm going to say. <laughs> all, right, all right. All right. In that case, I won't. I'm going to say, say. so yeah. So have Paul go first. Oh, huh. All right. So, We'll do is this, this, game is this for this episode, or is this just going to be for sound bites later? Oh, we can do that for this episode. Okay. All right. So, Paul Black, as we celebrate Thriller Night and this wonderful episode, how should Michael be remembered? As a true genius, as a magician, as an artist, as an entertainer, as a creator, as a once-in-a-lifetime human being in his art and the person that he really truly was, one of the most incredible people with his heart in the right place, always trying to do the best for everyone else and not always himself and using all his gifts and all his fame and everything that he had for the best purpose and the best possible way for the world and everybody in it. And we are just so thankful that we had him here and we are thankful that for some of us were, we were here in his lifetime to appreciate everything he had to offer. Genius. Was that your same answer, Adam? Cause I'm going to ask you now. Okay, here we go. Adam Green, how should Michael Jackson be remembered? I think that Michael Jackson should be remembered as a, both a fearless saint and a cautionary tale because this was a guy who did everything that he could have done good in his life. He was gifted with this amazing talent that was able to reach the world. And he tried so hard always to use it for good and make the world better. And when I say cautionary tale, he became so big that he became a target and I hope that people don't let that deter them from trying to do good on a huge global scale. Because if you really think about it, with all the problems in the world, we are an intelligent enough species that within a week, if we all just work together, we could fix so much, but we just don't. And so much of that, so much of the violence, the hatred, it all comes down to fear. And Michael was fearless. And that's, that's what we all need to be when it comes to how we love. We need to love fearlessly like Michael.